time again for another episode of Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Great triple header for you today. I think you're going to enjoy it. I was fortunate enough to be invited to CBS's Supergirl press conference. Hard to believe, uh, finally, the show is coming just a week away next Monday. And uh, it's going to be at a special time, 8.30 Eastern, 7.30 Central. And then uh, the following week, it will settle in to its 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, 7 p.m. Central time slot. So excited about this show. Great to hear from uh, producers Greg Berlanti, Andrew Kreisberg, Ali Adler, and, of course, uh, the star of Supergirl as well, Melissa Benoit. Uh, it was a great press conference, interesting conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it and get a lot out of it as uh, we all prepare for the uh, premiere next week. That's going to be in part one of Word Balloon. Part two, we'll be uh, happy to welcome back Andy Parks to Word Balloon, one of the original guests uh, way back when. But uh, Andy has been very busy. Um, he wrote uh, Ciudad for Oni Press and uh, was an excellent graphic novel. And also coming in a few weeks, Seduction of the Innocent from Dynamite. Uh, very excited about that. Both are just tremendous crime uh, stories from Andy. And uh, we get details on that and a whole lot more in part two. We wrap things up with our buddy Brent Schoonover. And Brent is another original Word Balloon guest from way, way back when he uh, drew Astronaut Dad. Well, uh, he's got two great projects happening. He drew the first issue of IDW's new Back to the Future series. And uh, that book comes out on Wednesday. And then next month, for all new, all different Marvel, he's doing Howling Commandos with Frank Barberi. So we talk about both of those books and a whole lot more to wrap things up on today's Word Balloon. It's going to be great, and I'm glad you can join me today. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, as always, for your support. Go to patreon.com slash word balloon if you'd like to subscribe to the show. It's not necessary. You know, you just got Word Balloon for free. All you have to do is go to wordballoon.com or on iTunes or whatever and download it. Boom, it's there. It will always be that way. But if you want to help out the cause, if you can if you can afford a dollar a month or whatever, go to patreon.com slash wordballoon or go to uh, my website, wordballoon.com, and you can click on the banner right there on the front page. And as always, thank you very much for your support. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Great selections of books this week at InStock Trades at great prices. Things like the Satellite Sam Omnibus, Howard Chaikin and Matt Fraction doing their best. 45% off, it's just $24.74. You can get the Man Thing by Steve Berger Complete Collection, Trade Paperback Volume 1. Also 42% off, $20.19. You can get uh, Damage Control. Uh, the complete collection from uh, Dwayne McDuffie and Company, 42% off. It's just $20.29. Archie Comics, 75 years in 75 stories. That trade paperback is 50% off, $7.49. From Paul Pope, you can get Battling Boy, The Fall of the House of West, 25% off, $7.49. Just a few of the great deals happening right now at InStockTrades.com. Check out all these deals and more waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. Well, it was very nice to be invited to uh, the CBS press conference for Supergirl. And I didn't get in t uh, a chance to ask a question myself, but I can honestly say that uh, the questions that I prepared were answered and asked by other members of the press. So uh, regardless, you're going to hear a great conversation with uh, Andrew Kreisberg, uh, Greg Berlanti, the executive producers, Ali Adler, another great producer, and Supergirl star Melissa Benoit. Uh, they are all there to talk about uh, the new adventures of Kara Zor-El's coming to the small screen starting next Monday. I can't believe it. Super 
Supergirl premieres Monday, October 26th, 8.30 Eastern, 7.30 Central Time. And then it will move to its regular uh, time slot uh, starting at 8 o'clock on Monday, November 2nd. It's all happening on the uh, CBS television network. And it's very interesting to see that this show is uh, up against Gotham. I just think that's amazing. So that's going to be an interesting television battle. And I have a feeling uh, that the girl in red and blue is going to win. But uh, let's uh, check into the Supergirl press conference that just happened on Monday. Let's listen to it right now on Word Balloon. Welcome to the CBS at TVC Los Angeles Supergirl premiere conference call. I would now like to introduce your host for today's presentation, Miss Beth Haken. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being on our conference call today. Um, we have only one week left. As you can imagine, the excitement is palpable here at CBS. Um, we premiere next Monday, October 26th at 8.30, and then we move to our regular time period the following week, November 11th, at 8 p.m. Um, and you, I think you all know that from the start, Supergirl has been a passion project for everyone here at CBS and Warner Brothers, and it, with, it is with such excitement that I can introduce to you the following panelists for today's conference call. We have our executive producers, Greg Berlanti, Andrew Kreisberg, and Allie Adler, and Supergirl herself, Melissa Benoist. We are ready to start the call. Our first question or comment comes from the line of Mike Hughes. Hey, uh, Melissa, oddly enough, I'm going to ask you about Halloween here for a second, because uh, I heard that you uh, first audition you went into, you got the call about it the day after Halloween last year, which is almost a year ago. So just to, to set the background for that. Well, last year I didn't have a costume. I was I was busy preparing for the audition. <laughs> yeah. uh, this year, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I thought David Bowie was a good idea. I also thought maybe trick-or-treating as Supergirl would be funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as a kid, I was Obi-Wan Kenobi many oh. years in a row. I was probably four or five years in a row. I was I was Alec, the Alec Guinness Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're working with uh, Han Solo's wife, so that's great. Yeah, that's super. Yeah. Hey, just one other thing. Um, there's been so much. Um, uh, when you first got it, you you were not as well known, but they've been showing you so much in these promos for the last month. Has your life changed just in the last month? Have people spotted you more just even before the show comes on the air? No. You know what? It, it, it hasn't really. First of all, I'm not really in public that much. I'm, I'm in Warner Brothers land working quite often. Um, but when I am in public, I haven't, I haven't noticed an external change in my life. It's more internally what I'm kind of dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Paulette Cohn. Good afternoon. Um, this is for the producers. Um, I'm curious, you know, when we talked at Comic-Con, you talked about there was going to be a big bad this season, but then there's been some, you know, rumors about other villains that are coming up. So I was wondering if you could address the what a villain, what villain Supergirl is going to face this year. Uh, hi, this is Andrew. Um, you know, we always have a traditional big bad for the season, um, the sort of uber villain who is, uh, you know, setting the, 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 the plans in motion. But just like with uh, the other shows, you know, there's always, there'll be uh, also villains of the week. The pilot sort of sets up the idea that there was a uh, alien prison from Krypton that crash-landed on Earth, and all of the prisoners escaped. So we're going to be meeting some of those alien villains. There will also be some human villains. Um, we've announced that the Toy Man 
uh, is going to be appearing on the show. But additionally, we have some uh, uh, major Kryptonian villains who are going to be the uh, the uh, um, the big bads of the season. Okay, just following up on that, not everybody's going to have kryptonite. So how are you going to make Supergirl vulnerable so that each week we're in suspense to see if she's going to survive? I think it's a little bit of a, um, a, a, a sort of collective, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, mistake that, that, that kryptonite is the only thing that can hurt a Kryptonian. Um, you know, uh, in the comic books and on certain, you know, especially other adaptations, uh, you know, specifically the Superman animated series, you see that he can, he, Superman himself can be hurt by a lot more than kryptonite. So, you know, on the show, we've shown that, you know, fighting certain aliens or uh, she fights Livewire, who has uh, electrical powers, but she has enough electricity to stop Supergirl's heart. Um, you know, there are other things on the show that are, that, you know, are beyond just kryptonite because, you know, again, like on the old series, you know, unless you had a rock of kryptonite, it was, uh, it was pretty much lights out for the bad guys. And and we certainly don't want that. And we always want to feel like our hero is in jeopardy. Terrific. Thank you so much. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Henry Hanks. Your line is open. Hey guys. Thanks for talking to us today. Um, uh, Allie kind of, uh, touched on this at New York Comic Con and I um, uh, wanted to hear what Melissa and the rest of you guys have to say about um, how the show kind of touches on the whole gender question and then kind of moves past it to being a, a good comic book action show and also uh, Melissa what uh, what do you think about balancing um, being a role model to young women and also you know being a good action show and not just making it uh, about that well um I guess how I approach it every day is that as long as Kara and Supergirl are enjoying themselves and uh, finding the joy in being a hero and the joy in using her powers finally after so long, that everything kind of stems from that. And I, I, I just always keep in mind her bravery and her hope and her positivity and her strength. And I think that it'll be hard for girls not to look up to that. What, one thing I would add, this is Greg. Um, yes. One thing I would add in terms of uh, that Melissa can't say about herself uh, but as, as a role model is now having worked with her for quite a few months, I think we all agree that, that, if, that uh, if there's any little girls out there, like we would want them all to grow up to be just like Melissa Benoist. Um, you know, she is, she, I, 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 I mean, it's, she's just such a, delight to work with from top to bottom and this this kind of show is so incredibly grueling from performance to stunts to training uh when you're not and learning lines when you're not doing those things uh and and we 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 can't uh create a show like this without someone like her carrying the whole show on her back and uh she's the the uh, you know exemplifies grace under pressure and so i i think in some ways and and i don't um you know uh, i mean this seriously like as we've moved ahead in writing Kara, you know, we've, we've tried to sort of capture what we think is just what's so special about Melissa, you know, and uh, in, the, in the back, truly, as we move forward in, in the back half of the year. Uh, but she, she, she just really personifies a lot of the, um, the qualities of the character, and it, it gives us something to, to write toward every day. I'm blushing, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Rob Owen. Your line is open. Hi. I guess this question is probably uh, mostly for the producers. Every 
time you start a show, you sort of envision one thing, and then the first year is always a, a shakedown cruise where you're finding what works best, what doesn't work as well, things that surprise you. And I'm wondering, you're much further along now than when we spoke to you at Press Tour this summer, and I'm wondering what surprises have there been along the way as you've been crafting this first season story, um, if you can give some sense of what you didn't expect that has, has come out of um, the writer's room, seeing dailies, that sort of thing. I think uh, in a lot of ways this kind of reminds us of Flash in that the show feels sort of fully formed a lot sooner than we were probably expecting, especially when it comes to the relationships amongst the characters. Um, You know, you always, you know, when you do a pilot, you come up with all of these characters and you cast them and you hope the cast is going to gel and that you're going to find interesting uh, scenes that can come out of the character work. And I think... You know, what, you know, with Melissa as the standard bearer and then watching her scenes with Calista and watching her scenes with Kyler and watching her scenes with Makad and all of her scenes with Laura Benanti and David and, and Jeremy, it's just been, um, it's just been a, a, a lot easier to sort of come up with things because, you know, we've seen the evidence of, of how much of the, uh, the character work on the show, um, you know, is really engaging for us. I think probably the biggest surprise which sort of happened again on Flash and it's happened on this is just really how hard it is to pull these shows off week in and week out with the visual effects and the stunts and the hyper amount of planning that goes into making them. You sort of you think like, oh, well, we pulled off Arrow so we'll be able to do Flash and then Flash turned out to be a lot bigger and then this has turned out to be a lot bigger than Flash. So, you know, every one of these shows has had a very steep uh, steep and unforgiving learning curve, but uh, <laughs> You know, we've been we've been incredibly proud and excited by the results, and, and hopefully um, everyone out there will be too. And I would Thank just you. add, this is Allie. I would just add that what we've also found is that all the attributes that Melissa has, that Supergirl has, are you know strength and courage and hope and positivity. They're very genderless, and so ultimately we hope to inspire uh, men and women out there. Thank you. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Emily Yar. I have a question about Calista Flockhart's um, The Girl speech, a supergirl versus superwoman. Um, I was just wondering if someone could sort of talk about where that came from and if you anticipated any backlash about the girl name and sort of wanted to address it up front. Yeah, I, um, Allie can speak to this as well, but we uh, even that, that, that speech was in the original pitch for the show. Um, you know, one thing I've I found in doing this is sometimes the temptation is there um, by executives to, to alter things, you know, that are, are, I think, sort of just part of the DNA of, of, what, the, of what the comic what was so great about the comic book. And so we really wanted to be protective of the name of the show, uh, and, and we sort of wanted to, I think, have a conversation with our characters that we believe that the audience would be having and that, you know, others might be having in terms of saying, well, she's an adult woman, why isn't it called Superwoman? Uh, and so, uh, and that that was the origin of it, and it was it was pretty much kind of always uh, always in existence. Allie, you said it perfectly. So there you go. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Greg Staffa. Your line is open. Thanks for taking our calls today. Um, I absolutely love the pilot. Uh, my first question is for Melissa. The the female empowerment is a common theme throughout the promoting of the show to the pilot itself. Yet. When thinking of shows like The Flash and Arrow, we don't talk about male empowerment of, you know, wanting to be The Flash. Is that something that you find is a burden at times or an asset? Um, And do you have a superhero of your own in real life? And who might that be? 
Well, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that I think of it as a burden. I, I definitely think it's an asset, and I, I honestly, I don't really tend to focus on it too much because I just want people to have fun watching the show and to really enjoy watching Kara's journey as much as I'm enjoying playing it. Um, and I, I, it truly, to me, does not matter that she's a girl because she kicks some serious ass. <laughs> Uh, and in my day-to-day life, I mean, I come from a family of where the women really are the majority. We outnumber the men in my family by far, and uh, all the women in my family are superheroes of mine. Um, growing up, Judy Garland was a huge superhero for me. Um, Rosemary Clooney. Uh, I watched a lot of old movies with my grandma. Thank you. And for the producers, uh, is there an overall kind of pivotal moment where you looked at Melissa and said, wow, we just nailed it? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm sure you felt that throughout the cast, you know, casting her, but was there a moment on in the pilot or something watching it play back and you just were like, wow, we did it? I mean, we knew that she was our Supergirl and our Kara from the very start. Um, I don't think any of us ever questioned that. Um, but that first time she put on the outfit for us, uh, we were on, at Warner Brothers in the costume department, and Colleen um, uh, Atwood, uh, you know, who designed the costume, you know, they, they came out. And, you know, uh, you know, for all the good intentions and all the good planning and all the, uh, you know, talented people in the world, you know, you could sometimes misfire on these things, especially when it's based on a comic book. But when Melissa stepped out wearing that outfit, it was like, oh, this is going to work. And, you know, none of us had any doubt from that point forward that, you know, that, that I mean, we knew, we'd ha- we knew we had the right girl, but we, we, after that we knew that we had something really, really, really special. Oh, well, thank you. I absolutely love the pilot. Oh, thank you so much. We really Thanks appreciate that. Thank you. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Dalton Tavlin. Your line is open. Hi, thank you guys. Um, first, I want to say I, I really love the pilot, um, Melissa. Um, I saw your ac- your representation of Supergirl was really accurate to um, to that of the comics. Um, I was just wondering, did you have to read any Supergirl comics to prepare yourself for the role, or do you feel as if your your personality just falls in line with that of Supergirl? I read some of them. Uh, I read some of the New Fifty Two. Um, but also what I love about what um, Allie, Greg, and Andrew, and Sarah have created is that I, I truly feel like we are making the modern 2015 version of her. And so I did want to kind of, I wanted to know the world, but I wanted to kind of separate myself from it a little bit to, to really make her my own. Okay, thank you. Um, um, Greg, um Supergirl in the pilot, she seemed to have a lot of control and know a lot about her powers and her abilities. Um, at, the, at this moment, does she know the full extent of her powers, or is that something that's going to come along throughout the show as she learns more and she has the face? Yeah, she, I, I, my, uh, I think our collective gut is that she's very much just at the beginning of her journey. Um, and so even, even the stuff that she thinks she knows uh, you know, will, will come into question, not just about her powers, but also about her backstory and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, where she comes from and, 
And uh, so there'll be, uh, I think, uh, there's always a bit of mystery around around that, uh, her origins, and, and also just around what her what the, her capacities are. Okay, thank you, guys. I love the pilot. Keep it up. Thank you. We're going to try. Thank you. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Tara Bennett. Your line is open. Hi, guys. Thanks for doing this. Um, this question is for the producers. Um, obviously, we see that uh, Tara's biggest advocates are going to be our sister, James, and Hank, but they're working kind of separately in that pilot. How are we going to see them helping her as we move into the series as a unit, or are they all going to be kind of disparate kind of uh, confidants as we move through the, through the development? I think something that separates Superman from Supergirl is that he's sort of autonomous. He, you know, flies in Metropolis by himself, and something that we're really proud of is that, you know, our episode two is titled Stronger Together, and it, it really is maybe not just about a woman that, that is more uh, readily able to accept help, but Carl really embracing that and, and getting that help from her sister and Hank and, uh, and, and other forces at CatCo as well. Um, Zandra, I think one of the fun things about the show in the beginning is that, you know, she, she does have uh, very differentiated parts of her world. She has the DEO led by Hank and their sister works at where she works, you know, at, you know as a sort of, you know, uh, uh, unofficial agent of the DEO as Supergirl. But she also has um, Jimmy Olsen and Wynn um, and whether she realizes it or not, Kat back at CatCo in her, her day life. And part of the fun of the show is that, like, she's keeping these things very separate. And as the show moves forward, they start to bleed into one another, and then you get the sort of fun complications of the people who consider themselves the professional alien hunters having to deal with what they consider to be the civilian amateur alien hunters. But what's great about the show is that everybody has something to contribute, and everybody has a value, and everybody is constantly learning from each other. And Kara learns very different things from these worlds. You know, with the, with the DEO and her sister and Hank, she really learns to hone her powers and, and become an even better superhero. But from her friends at CatCo, she really learns the importance of, of being Cara Danvers and just being a woman and uh, being a human being and uh, staying grounded and tied to the people that she's sworn to protect. So, Great, thank you. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Megan Damore. Your line is open. Hi, guys. Thank you for doing this conference call. I want to kind of bring this back to the girl power marketing. We see a lot of emphasis on that. Are we going to see Kara develop any female friendships outside of her sister in the show? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I think we, we talk about her relationship with Cat Grant as a very important, you know, woman of power in her life. And ultimately, Cat Grant is a super uh, superhero, too, as is her sister a superhero. But Cat, uh, you know, in the pilot definitely is uh, a voice of wisdom, whether she says it in a, you know, a kind way or not. She's always inspiring Supergirl to, to achieve higher heights. And in ways, you know, that's a, an amazing female relationship as well. Um, yeah, and she's also going to become friends with Lucy Lane, played by Jenna Dewan Tatum, who um, uh, comes to the show as a, a former love interest of uh, Jimmy's, um, and as uh, uh, you know, to add some complications. But again, part of the fun part of it is that uh, um, you know, Kara being the nicest person in the world, um, that uh, Lucy really likes her, um, and the two of them have some adventures together. Our next question <clears throat> or comment comes from the line of Lucas Siegel. 
Hey guys, Lucas here from comicbook.com. Uh, the pace of the pilot is really go, 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 with a lot being established and Cara really jumping into things feet first. Uh, for the producers, is that a pace that you're hoping to keep for the duration of the first season? And for Melissa, how does that pace challenge you? Uh, yeah, we, we are intending to keep up that pace. We, you know, <clears throat> we, we sort of don't know any other way to do it. And, you know, we've often talked about the, you know, with the TV landscape and, and, and honestly the feature landscape too, you know, everyone, you know, at any given moment, there's a, you know, a, a uh, you know, a feature film on, you know, it's the Avengers or, or the Dark Knight or Man of Steel or, or Iron Man or Thor. And you can get your kick from this stuff anywhere. And so you really have to provide something special and singular every single week to keep people entertained. So we think of this as trying to produce a, a Supergirl movie every single week. Um, and, and hopefully, this is uh, not relaxed girl. It's Supergirl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we just have to figure out a way to do it and not kill Melissa. <laughs> well, and that's the difficulty is that, you know, you're making a movie a week, which it really feels like we are. Just the sheer amount of what we have to do, and not just me. I mean, the, the crew behind us and, and the other actors, we are working nonstop and, and pretty tirelessly. Excellent. And you mentioned a lot of that other superhero entertainment. A lot of it in TV and film has been very dark, but this seems to have a purposeful approach to being a hopeful superhero story. What, what does that allow you to do storytelling-wise that the grim and gritty approach wouldn't? Um, I, you know, I think that Superman has always been, uh, you, know, uh, you know, more than just a hero. I mean, he's, he's been an inspiration and, and a beacon of hope and, and something to aspire to. And, you know, you know, and it's no, I mean, you know, we're, we're certainly guilty of, of putting a, a very dark hero on television in Arrow. Um, but, you know, there is something about Supergirl that just represents the light and the hope and the goodness in people. And I think that, you know, it, it's, impor it's, it's important for our times. It's important for our world. And it's so tied into the character. And, we, you know, I think that there's a tendency to not embrace what things are. And, you know, I think you do that at your peril. And so we've really embraced that. And hopefully, uh, uh, you know, not only Melissa, but the show itself can be an inspiration. Excellent. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Our next question or comment comes from the line of David Martindale. Your line is open. Oh, thank you. Uh, for Melissa, uh, it, maybe this is an obvious question on one level, but, you know, having to do with, you know, what appealed to you about the character initially. But it's only obvious because seeing the show now, what's not to like, right? But can you talk about your initial reaction? What was it that turned you on about this part? Well, um, I think my uh, the reason that I was so drawn to it from the beginning was because I knew it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I, I knew it would have... I just think it's such a beautiful story to tell in a really sometimes scary world and that it would be something I'd be really proud to be a part of. Okay. Uh, if you could have any of Supergirl's powers in real life, the vision, the hearing, the flying, uh, her near indestructible nature, etc., cetera, uh, is there one that you would most want to have as you, as Melissa? I, I always 
go kind of the cliche, perhaps boring route, and I, I just would, I would want to fly. I think the power of flight is, by hands down, the one I would want. Okay. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Thank you. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Ann Easton. Your line is open. I just had a quick question about the writing process and how you uh, make Kara grounded and believable and yet a superhero at the same time. Could you talk a little bit about finding that balance for her? Well, we always talk about this character if she did not have superpowers. So how she approaches any given situation if she was just like you or I, and then she has this bonus skill set. And uh, that's really how we look at each either villain of the week or her problems, her emotional life, her romantic life. Uh, we look at it that way. And then, you know, you don't want to heat vision the guy that uh, isn't paying attention to you, but we definitely look at it from a perspective of uh, being powerless and then what her powers bring to it. Gotcha. And, Melissa, this is such a physical role. Did, did you train for this prior to filming, or are you training now, or how do you keep up, I guess is what I'm asking. I, I trained before we started uh, the season shooting, but um, now that we're in the thick of it, I, the work kind of is the workout. <laughs> I've found that I, I have sustained a feeling like my endurance over the month, the past few months, just by doing the stunts and the and the thing, the physical activity I'm I'm doing every day. Great, thanks so much. Thank you. Our next question or comment comes from the line of George Marston. Your line is open. Hey, guys. Um, I have a question for the producers primarily. Uh, Ali, you touched on this a little bit at New York Comic Con, saying that you wouldn't ever want to separate yourself from the wider DC TV universe. And obviously, Greg and Andrew, you guys have connections to that as well, meaning you know, Flash and Arrow and uh, the upcoming Legends of Tomorrow. Um, are there any plans in the future? Is this something you guys talked about to uh, kind of bring that together, to have Supergirl enter that world or elements of Supergirl enter that world? And for Melissa... Is that something that you would be excited about to, to meet up with, uh, you know, the Green Arrow and the Flash? I, I think is there, uh, you know, uh, we are on two separate networks. I mean, I, it's we, we've said this before, but um, just to reiterate it, I mean, the shows all very much have to sort of survive uh, on their own. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, but that being said, I think uh, what we also always say and, and mean it is that in success, <clears throat> anything is possible. Um, you know, I mean, for, for those that know um, the Flash and Arrow well, they know that, um, you know, we have not mentioned the existence of Superman on those shows, and, and he does exist on this show. So just uh, storytelling-wise, we, we would, uh, that would be something we would, we would have to overcome as an example. But, um, but I think uh, we're, we're just focused on, on getting this one launched and, and hope uh, that it enjoys, you know, some of the same uh, success that those have enjoyed and the same, um, you know, quality of fans and commitment of fans. And, and if, if all those things happen, who knows? And uh, if it were a possibility and we could overcome those hurdles, I would, I think it would be so much fun. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Everyone, this is Beth with CBS. Thank you for participating in our Supergirl conference call. As you know, again, we premiere next Monday, October 26th at 8.30. And then the following week on November 2nd, we move to our regular time period of 8 o'clock. Thank you, everyone, for participating in the call today. 
There you go. Thank you, CBS, for uh, letting us uh, share this uh, with you and uh, gives you a chance to kind of get inside and get psyched for uh, next week's debut of Supergirl. Before we switch to our uh, next subject, I just want to mention that I've seen the Supergirl pilot, and much like last year's Flash pilot, this is going to blow everybody away. I've been talking about this really since I saw the uh, the Supergirl pilot uh, this past summer. It is fantastic. Do not listen to the nitpicky naysayers that are, are finding uh, little minor flaws, things that maybe they wouldn't have done if they had written the pilot. Well, that's fine, but I believe that this is going to not only blow the comic fandom away, this is going to be a massive mainstream hit, even more so than Arrow and the Flash, because of the fact that it has a female lead, and everyone is going to fall in love with Melissa's performance. This is just excellent. These guys and women that make this show have been evolving since they started working on things like Arrow and the Flash and soon Legends of uh, Tomorrow. Supergirl is going to be right there with all the other great shows, and you're all going to be very, very happy with how great it is. All right, in the meantime, let's uh, move on to uh, a conversation with uh, Andy Parks. Very happy to have Andy back. He is a great writer. He's an excellent inker. We talk about uh, both of those uh, jobs that he does in comics on uh, wonderful books like uh, See You Dot from Oni Press and uh, the coming Dynamite series, Seduction of the Innocent, which apparently has uh, been a long time coming. So uh, it's uh, great to talk to Andy Parks and bring that information to you now on Part 2 of Word Balloon. He's back. It's Andy Parks. Andy, welcome back to Word Balloon. Uh, recent uh, birthday. We were just talking about how uh, we both have pending birthdays, so uh, happy birthday to you. Thank you very much. Always good to be back, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. You're doing interesting projects. We're going to talk about the the new one. Uh, well, let's, let's start with the new one first, okay. I guess, because uh, that's the one that I'm sure people uh, have read about recently and are excited to order from Dynamite. They're doing a series with a very provocative title that's known to comic historians and even, I think, casual fans will know Seduction of the Innocent. Yeah. It's, that one's been a very odd one. It's so When you work on a project and it kind of evolves over, this has been maybe two, three years since they first mentioned it to me, and then all of a sudden everybody knows about it. It feels very weird because it's been in your head so long. Uh, did you already did you already write it? Have you like yes. did you turn in scripts a long time ago? I, uh, not a long time ago, but I finished the fourth issue script several months ago. So okay. yeah, it's been in the can for me. Basically, they had they need me to write it because the artist had an opening. Sure, and this is your Lone Ranger. Uh, it is Esteve Poles. Yeah. Okay. He had done the Django thing with Matt Wagner. Yes. And then Excellent. he had an opening, and they're like, "Okay, we need to keep him busy for a while." So if you can. Because we'd been talking about his seduction forever, and I was just kind of waiting. And then they said, okay, now. And, of course, once, That's wild. once they want it, of course, they want it, you know, right away. But Of course. But you had, you said, you know, you, you were kind of percolating with ideas, I'm assuming, for, for a while. Yeah. It was really – okay, they brought me this idea, like, it might be three years ago now. And they had the title, and they wanted some kind of crime story that was set – in that era of the hearings of Wortham's hearings. Okay. Mid 1950s. Yeah. Like kind of, and they wanted, they wanted Wortham's hearing the house hearings on whatever it was. I don't remember what they called it exactly. Do you remember the exact title? No. I mean, obviously it was juvenile delinquency. Is it, is it contributing to comics and Estes Kefauver, the, uh, one of the famous Republican senators, um, 
and I know him because he was also they ran Senate hearings as well back in the early '60s about uh, the mob infiltration of boxing. Oh right, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Keith Offer's kind of a been a regular guy that I've encountered in my various right. uh, hobbies and and also things I've covered for broadcasting. And some so, of these yeah. guys, that's how they made their reputation. They they were the hearings guys, and they'd get people pissed off and prove that they were earning their pay every now and then. And yeah, you know, great examples like Harry Truman. Yeah. Now, Harry, was yeah. a legit, you know, a legitimate, as you know, exactly, Kansas boy. Uh, or no, he's well, Missouri. He's Missouri, Missouri, but yeah, Missouri. I grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City, so he's like our guy. Yeah, sure. I always felt well, more connected yeah. to him than I did Eisenhower, who's our Kansas president. Oh, I didn't realize Eisenhower was a Kansas yeah, guy. That's yeah. well, but yeah, Harry Truman was kind of he he held hearings during World War II about war profiteering. Right. You know, yeah, people that were like had war contracts and were really scamming the government and not producing. And that's what kind of transitioned him from a joke. He was called the senator from Pendergast. <laughs> we talked about yeah. that. Absolutely. Go on. And that, and that gave him a real rep so that he was a viable alternative when they really needed a VP who brought something to the table. For Roosevelt's fourth term. Right. And yeah, like you said, the, the senator from Pendergast, because if people hadn't heard – our our first conversation union uh, union station yeah yeah union station thank you sir yeah we talked about Tom Pendergast was a city boss right. of Kansas City and you know kind of like Tammany Hall in New York and Chicago with the Democratic machine and stuff yeah, a political yeah. machine that kind of ran things and yeah you know uh, so uh, Truman was a judge for Pendergast became a senator right. and yeah like you said it was a joke until these until this war profiteering and then like we say to uh, to some unfortunately you know. Everyone remembers McCarthyism, right. uh, unfortunately, of, of the 1950s. And then there were other hearings like uh, juvenile, juvenile delinquency uh, in comics. In fact, you can hear WNYC, the New York public radio station, has audio transcripts of the comic book uh, court cases. Oh, really? I yes. haven't heard the whole and, thing. I went back uh, – anyway, to get back to where I was – they wanted well, yes, but, uh, uh, they yeah, wanted the hearings involved, and I listened yes. to some of the gain stuff, or I, I read it. I don't remember if I read it or listened okay. to it. Okay, okay, um, because that was part of the original pitch was uh, how Gaines kind of blew it in his testimony, and there are wacky theories on why he wasn't kind of all together. Some people think he was loopy on diet pills, and, and anyway, he yes. he didn't do himself any great favors, and he had the most to lose at those hearings because you know his whole line was going to be wiped away pretty much right we're talking about william gaines the publisher of mad magazine and ec comics right and for for the un you know uninitiated um yeah this is these were the comics that really were the main target although there were a lot of horror and crime comics in the 50s that all kind of fell under you know these kinds of things and i was even wondering about uh, Lev Gleason, isn't it? Lev Gleason, uh-huh. who did the yeah. original Daredevil, and he did Crime Doesn't Pay, and that was another big publisher right. at the time of of crime comics and stuff. They have all those great Charles. I never knew how to say it. It's Biro or Biro. Yeah, I always assumed it was Biro. Yeah, like, all those uh, great like covers pens. that he did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and was Biro the uh, uh, Plastic Man creator? No, that's. Uh... That's Cole, right? Oh, that's right. Jack yeah, yeah. Cole, of course yeah. it is. And yeah, Jack Cole, of course. And then this was the same publisher. And they did right. police comics right. where Plastic Man came from and everything. Crime Buster was kind of their big youth hero right. and stuff. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm just – I'm filling in the context. Right. So are <laughs> these – yeah. So is this like an anthology series? Are they separate stories no. or are they linked? So what their idea was, we want a crime story 
And we also want the hearings and all that. And we want it all going on together and kind of playing off each other and so on. Okay. Um, so I spent some time making that happen. And what I found predictably is that uh, con- congressional hearings are not very exciting on a comic book page. <laughs> so I tried to, I kind of tried to maximize the drama in those as much as I could and then green- bring in the crime elements uh, more to kind of make the hearing stuff not completely boring. And then that damn Max Allen Collins wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent that had a lot of that stuff in it. Oh, wow. I had forgotten that. Go on. Right. And, and it's a fiction It's a fiction book. It is. Uh, it's a prose novel, right. Okay, go on. And I haven't read it, but the, the Dynamite guys wrote and said, well, this is kind of a blow, and we're probably not going to do this thing the way we've oh, talked man. about it. And I said, well, that makes sense. I get it. But if you ever want to do it as just a flat-out crime thing, let me know, because I like writing crime fiction, and we can make something happen. And like a year later, they are like, let's do it that way. So they wanted to keep the title, uh, which I get it's catchy and in in the comics world, it gets people's attention, Um, but it no longer really has anything to do with the hearings. It's actually set. If I remember like, like right before the hearings happen. Okay. Um, because I kind of wanted to say like, okay, let's set it in those last days of anything goes, at least in the comic book world. And it's just a gritty crime story. Um, set in San Francisco because I always like like I love that Maltese Falcon was set in San Francisco and I like that absolutely setting. yeah Dashiell Hammett yeah, no, yeah. Absolutely. all of his all of his heroes were set in San Francisco yeah which, right and plus the fog the fog and all the crazy streets the uphill streets yeah, and everything and there's so I love this city and there's so many crazy settings that I wanted to use I wanted to use Chinatown and the Japanese Tea Garden and yes. the wharf and I didn't get to Alcatraz. If they let me write more, I'll get to Alcatraz. We didn't get to that. Okay. Um, (laughs) So I wanted to use all that stuff. And so to relate back to the title, the story is about this young kind of naive FBI agent. And it's about him being seduced by the darkness and violence in the big city that he is not expecting. So the title still relates to the theme of the whole thing, but it no longer has anything to do with the the Wortham hearings and so on. Okay, and I, you know, again, I haven't read Max's book either. I'm a huge Max Collins yeah, fan. Yeah, yeah, me too. And and I hope that maybe for your second arc, without knowing what's in Max's book, I think of Gerard Jones's Men of Tomorrow yeah, history right. of comics, and and the real history of comics that is tied to the criminal element. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and I think that you know there might be some you know interesting stuff oh, there. That's and a good point. Like, yeah. You know, by now everybody's dead. Right, right. <laughs> so I, I, I think you're okay <laughs> right. to kind of explore that stuff. It would be interesting. So, yeah, man. Were you in San Diego this summer? I forgot. No, I haven't been in like three or four years. Okay, I was going to say probably the last time was when we exactly uh, got that yeah yeah uh, of the great George Clayton Johnson, that was the amazing. co-writer of yeah, man, Logan's Run and Ocean's Eleven and Great Twilight Zone right. and Star Trek writer, a wonderful sci-fi writer. Um, yeah, because. Um, Malcolm uh, Wheeler, Major Malcolm Wheeler uh, Nicholson, the uh, the original founder of what became National Periodicals in DC mm-hmm. Comics. He's the guy who created uh, Detective Comics and, and Fun Comics and then later More Fun, uh, ultimately selling his uh, books to National. But his granddaughter was there 
and uh, talking about those pre-action comics number one days of the comics from oh, you know cool. up to nineteen up to nineteen thirty-eight, and yeah, no, and I think that com- combined with with uh, Gerard's book and everything, uh, yeah, there's there's interesting stuff there, and like you say, the the title is provocative and will certainly get people talking, right. and uh, and I'm sorry, I forget your collaborator's name again, Esteve Poles. Yeah, Esteve's art, my God, I yeah. mean that's kind of perfect. He's for, really uh, saw in. The colors, I know. I'm now. I'm going to be embarrassed because I don't remember the color's name, but he's really good. Esteve needs just the right guy, and this guy's really a good fit. And then we have our old uh, Simon uh, Bolin, who lettered all our Lone Ranger stuff, is on this book too. So, very kind of cool. getting the and band back together a little bit. No, that's terrific. It's a good team. Now, is uh, just four issues or five issues? I've written four, and that's all I'm doing for now. So, but you okay. know. Nikki, Nikki is not a dummy. If something, if it goes well, I'm sure we could do more. Okay, but yeah, it's going to be a four issue yeah, uh, series. Right. Very cool, man. No, I, and to be honest with you, kind of glad because um, I don't. I never think it's the writer's fault, but a lot of dyna, some dynamite books sometimes they take their sweet time with the story. Yeah, right. And it's like, guys, let's. And I and I kind of have a feeling that comes from editorial and publishing. It's possible, rather than yeah. the guy. You know, you know. Again, yeah, whatever. And I know you did a lot of singles and double and, and two parters. Well, I did. Uh, I wrote like the first three, well, at least the first two arcs of Lone Ranger are big kind of six issue things. Yes. And then from that point, we never knew how much time we had. I mean, we knew Lone Ranger wasn't right. a major seller and wasn't going to be around forever. So we stuck to one or two issues because we never knew when we might get the plug pulled. And actually, I grew to really enjoy the discipline that comes with that of, uh, you know, telling a one and done, especially in a Western. I was, I just, I kind of pretended I was writing the rifleman or something. I hear you. And I, I, yeah, I just applied that kind of discipline to it. Like let's introduce some new characters. Let's show an interesting dynamic that tests their, our hero's character and get the hell out. Get out of Dodge, literally. Absolutely, man. No, you know, and I think that worked too for Palmiotti and Justin Gray when they were doing Jonah Hex. Yeah, right. And, and really, I mean, well, let's, let's be honest. I mean, Great Western comics for years. They were one and done, mm-hmm. or if anything, even eleven pages right, and stuff. Right. So, no, that's great, man. I'm I'm very psyched for this series, and I think uh, you know a great great art team, and you're awesome, and you're kicking ass, uh, and I'm really glad that you're getting more and more opportunities to write. Yeah, thank and, you. Uh, no, man, I, I'm very very psyched for this series. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And another thing too, um, you know, it's it's I'm glad you're telling, like I said, tighter stories because. You know, the the single issues are really kind of it's 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 becoming an interesting time at the big two mm-hmm. as they flirt with that four ninety nine price point. I know. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's 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 interesting. Now, I, I, I don't even know. Is this going to be a three ninety nine book? Do you know? I believe so. Yeah. I don't. Okay. I think I would know if it had jumped. Um, sure. And standard 20, 20 pages. Yeah, uh, we're twenty two. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Even better. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Good deal. And I also wanted to talk to you about was it Oni that put out Ciudad? Yes. Yeah. Man, I got to tell you, dude, I loved it. Oh, good. I, I, oh, absolutely. Now, and I know you co-wrote that with the Russo brothers, well, right? Well, kind of. Uh, we co-developed yeah, it. it. It was an interest, interesting situation. At the time, they were still TV directors. They were known for Arrested Development. I think back when I first met them, um, Community was still in the future. Okay. Um, and they were trying to get back to their roots a little bit because their first – have you ever seen their first kind of caper movie, Welcome to Collinwood? No, I'm aware of it. I haven't seen it. You'd Come like on. it. It's cool. It's got a, a Michael Jeter, who I just love and miss all the time. He's in it. Yeah. Great. 
the evening shade uh, guy. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, he's so uh, great. Great character actor, absolutely. Um, he breaks your heart in uh, uh, the Green Mile. Oh yes, yeah. with Mister Amazing, yeah. His little mouse or little rat, I forget. <laughs> so they um, they had an idea for this story, and basically they had a setting and a premise. The setting was this Ciudad del Este, which is a real place, a very corrupt, kind of lawless place. And they had this character, uh, an extractor, who goes into this place and gets out people who've been kidnapped. Because it's where a lot of kidnapped people get taken to. There's a really brutal documentary about all the kidnappings that go on there. And on there, I would, you know, some things you watch and you wish you could just undo it. Um, yeah, I understand. And I watched that documentary, and it's a common custom there, custom, practice to maybe remove the ear of the person you kidnapped and send it back. Sure. And they show wow. that it's, oh. it's, it's awful. Um, wow. anyway, there's a great documentary about that whole thing. So they came geogra- to th- geographically. Is this, is this Texas or no, it's between, um, Uruguay, Brazil. And I always forget the third. It's this little triad in South America. Okay. Uh, and there's this little place that, and we covered in the book. It's kind of, it's got its own little government, but it's just really a corrupt hellhole place. So they came to Oni and they said, we've got this general idea. They had like six pages of a screenplay and they had the idea. And we can't get it off the ground as a screenplay. So what we'd like to do is maybe develop it with you guys as a graphic novel and a film at the same time. Wow. And because I was Oni's kind of researchy guy, Oni came to me and said, would you like to work on them uh, on this with them? So I said, sure. Um, and we would get on the phone and we kind of bash out the ideas. And they have, you know, with, they have some Hollywood connections. Even back then, they were able to get us on the phone with like former CIA guys who knew the area real well. And we could talk to, and I'll never forget, we talked to this one guy. And he said, well, if you want to really get to know Ciudad, you just come down with, with me for like a week and I'll show you all around. And we hung up and I, I said to my wife, I'm not going that that's not happening (laughs) i want to write this book but there's no way in hell i'm going down there and i I understand and i wrote the uh brothers i said hey if you go if you guys want somebody who's going to go down there for a week you got the wrong guy and they said oh god no we're not going down there either no we understand (laughs) they actually (laughs) shot did you ever i never saw it did you see uh miami vice the movie no not the colin farrell movie yeah i had to stay well i guess go on they were going to shoot they shot part of it down in Ciudad del Este, and they were going to shoot the ending there, the climax. Wow. And Jamie Foxx said, hell with you. I'm leaving. They kidnapped people <laughs> down here for real. I'm out. So they had to, I, like, I understand. They had to like reshoot it. Uh, wow. So anyway, at some point it got optioned by Paramount, and then once it gets optioned, they want the script like right away. So I sure. flew to L.A. for the first time, and I went to uh, an office in Hollywood and sat down with the brothers for like three days. And we kind of just bashed out an outline together. And then I went off and wrote the graphic novel and they went off and wrote a screenplay. So they're based on the same general outline, but they're very different products in the end. Okay. Will you, if it becomes a movie, will you get credit? Yeah, I get, I have a little bit of ownership in it. They were nice enough to give me a little bit of ownership. And that's terrific. And then the, like the placard, it's all in the contracts. It would say something like based on the graphic novel by, Joe and Anthony Russo and Andy Parks and drawn by so-and-so, whatever. Fernando Leon, Leon uh, yeah, Gonzalez. Right. Yeah, which, by the way, I mean, dude, I, and I'm sure you feel the same way. I, uh, unfortunately, no names come to mind, 
but for so many years in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, I have found and loved South American crime comics. Yeah, right. And, right. and I don't know where they got Fernando Gonzalez from. I don't know um, how he came into there. We had a really hard time. We had one artist that fell through, and then we couldn't find the right guy. And I had a very particular vision of somebody who was kind of grounded in realism, but not too much. Somebody could cartoon a bit, and and he just, when he came across, I was like, well, that's the guy. It took a while, but we really did find the right guy, I think. Absolutely, man. And Chris Crank doing the lettering as well. Yeah, he did an amazing. Our- and it's a demanding book. There are a lot of different fonts and stuff going on. He's really good. Absolutely. No, and a good friend of uh, of uh, Word Balloons and the yeah. uh, Chicago comics community. He used to work for Devil's Due. Right, right. Back in the day and stuff. Is he so, still yeah, a local just- guy? He's in Cincinnati now. In fact, I saw him at uh, Tony Moore's oh, cool. uh, Cincy Comic Con. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, you know, so no, great guy. And, and it, you know, gets a lot of independent work. And I'm glad because, yeah, he really is a, a top notch letterer. Right. And I didn't realize at the time that he did it when I saw the credits. I'm like, hey, Craig did this. Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. So and he, he also currently does revival for Celia and Norton. Right. He's tight with uh, those among, guys. Among right. other books. Was he oh, either yeah, in their yeah. studio or was he not part of that? It was before they had the studio, okay. but like they were, they were all together working on you know Devils Do stuff, and really, um, they still do. Uh, Crank and Norton still do the Crank Cast, and oh, that's I didn't one know of those, they still did that. Yeah, yeah, that's one of those original two thousand six podcasts that's still chugging wow. along. Right. So uh, yeah, man. No, it's uh, no. I'm I'm really happy, at it, and it's a tremendous book, man. Thank I, I you really so much. love it. It's no a question. Again, that was an odd one. You know, I wrote it. Like I said, at one point it got option by paramount and so i had to write it in i don't know for me writing a whole graphic novel in like four or five months or whatever it was it was pretty intense and then it didn't come out because of you know artist changes and all this stuff it didn't come out for like five years so it's a very weird scenario when it comes out and you're like oh my god there's that thing <laughs> now, That's now crazy. suddenly it's in everybody's hands but it's so it's so far removed from what I'm doing these days that it was a very interesting phenomenon when it came out, but I'm glad. Yeah. It seemed to be well-received. I'm glad people dig it. Absolutely. It's a very tough, it's probably, and I've written some tough stuff, but it's probably the toughest kind of harshest thing I've written. Wow. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a a lot of really nasty stuff. And when I go to, you know, I go to library events or literary events sometimes and I, and these nice little old ladies come up and they're like, oh, we want to buy a book. And I'm like, well, here's Ciudad, but I want to tell you a lot of horrific things happen in here. And you maybe, need to, maybe you need to just take a peek between the covers before you buy one. I don't want to be I don't better want to be responsible for traumatizing anybody. Are they just comics in general kind of library festivals or are they? I go to, uh, because of Capote in Kansas, I got to know a lot of the library ladies around this area. And so if they're having like an author event, they often invite me to that stuff. And I have like a, I have a PowerPoint presentation where I break down a scene from Capote in Kansas and kind of talk about how Chris and I work together to get the effects that we wanted, how we slow things down, how we speed them up, how we kind of use symbolism to get this message across, you know, and, and it, it just kind of blows people's minds that, oh, people who make comic books are thinking about things like theme and symbolism yes. like yeah I did. <laughs> who knew <laughs> well no but uh, that is the great thing and i really think that um 
adult comic books have really blossomed in the 2000s in a, it, at, a, at a pace and rate. I mean, they've always been around. I mean, God, as you know, there's that um, uh, Arnold Drake and uh, was it Matt Wilson or Matt, Matt Baker? Oh, yeah. Matt Baker. Yeah. Matt Baker is an African-American cartoonist from the from the late 40s and 50s. He was a Phantom Lady uh, cartoonist, mm-hmm. among other things. But they did that. It rhymes with lust, right. I believe, or it rhymes with dust. I can't remember what it was called, but a, a great you know, crime graphic novel that really can stand up with you know anything you can think of in terms of just a good, tough crime story. And it was a very adult story for its time right. as well. Right. But now I really do think, you know, God, I think back to, you know, when Vertigo was doing the crime novels just a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, got a, a million of our uh, artist friends like Jason Latour and stuff were, were guys that drew those, mm-hmm. um, you know, to the stuff you were doing at Oni from Union Station and Capote and things yeah. like that. You know, I mean, it's it's really cool. And especially and I always love to point out that, it, God, just the dumb luck. How how did you meet Somni? Because Somni is such a different artist today. But the great thing is you can go back to Capote in Kansas and it's a different style, but the guy was a hell of a storyteller. Yeah, in the you back. can see it, right. I talk about it in that PowerPoint. I show there's a panel where he has dropped the lines around a figure because they're kind of defined by the rain that's happening in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and I show that and I go, a 24-year-old kid should not know how to do that. <laughs> so this kid was just remarkable. He had just showed stuff to Oni and Oni showed him to me like what do you think and i said i don't know i think he might be he might be ready and so i think he drew four or five i think he drew like four pages as a test and uh i think my editor was like i don't know i'm not sure and i said no i think this is the guy and this i think we need to sign this kid up and yeah he just i mean you could see him blossom he was good from the get-go but you could see him kind of blossoming throughout that that story he, well, you know, you you introduced him to my podcast and uh, around comics was still going on yeah, back right, then. Right. And we all just were like, my God, this kid's great. Yeah. And just as a thank you, he sent us these these lovely little, like slightly bigger than baseball card kind of painted sketches of different things. Oh, cool. And he gave me a shadow sketch and it's it, it was great. To now, you know, modern Chris Somney and, you know, uh, all the accolades that come to yeah, him and yeah. wait for daredevil run and everything he's done uh you know ultimate spider-man and all the different marvel things that he did and uh, i forget what uh, he's got coming up actually i don't re- but, i don't know that i've heard what he's doing post daredevil i, I don't but, yeah but right now as i'm looking in my office i'm looking at a framed uh dan dare the 50s british flash gordon right. character and he did this beautiful when he when he, he and a bunch of the uh artists and i can't remember the name of what their like they all did warm up sketch and sketches and just to challenge themselves they oh, would like Oh, they uh, had a group. With, yeah. Yes, and it was on Blogger or whatever right, right. and I can't remember and I I think Chris's wife kind of named the group or whatever. That was too. super cool. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, man. And uh and yeah, you know, so I I bought back in uh, 2010, you know, this great Dan Dare warm up sketch. That and a great Super Chief nice. that he did. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh no, I lo- you know, I love my Silver Age right. characters absolutely, man. Well, Chris so, is a I say this in the nicest possible way. Chris is a freak. Chris, yes. I, I remember sitting down with his wife like 15 years ago. Man, maybe not that long. Maybe 10. Yeah, probably around 10 years and ago. And saying, that's what the time. Go on. I'm really worried he's going to burn out. Like, you need to, <laughs> you need to not let him work so much. He's going to, 
I mean, nobody can handle that much time at the board. These guys get fried. And she was like, yeah, I know, but he has to ink his own stuff because it kills him to have somebody else. And I just, he really wants to do it. And then I look back and think, well, she was right. He's just one of those guys who doesn't get burned out because he just wants to be at the board. Yes. He, he, I mean, the days are hard, but he doesn't, he seems to thrive on it. He, yeah, he's clearly inspired by the work, by right, the process right. and everything. And, you know, a guy that loves Alex Toth and, and people like that, so it does make sense that, no, he really does need to ink his own stuff. Right, right. And, and, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's a wonderkind. He's a genius. Yeah. We, I, love, I love that about him. Absolutely, man. And uh, really, like I said, I'm really thrilled with everything that's been going on with you writing-wise and stuff. So is there anything future-wise that you can tease with us or, or is it too early to talk about anything? No, the things I've been working on lately uh, – here's the deal. I took like a year – I didn't write a lot for a year because I – basically took a year off to write a novel. Okay. And so I have this prose novel sitting here. It's kind of, it's set in Kansas city in the forties, kind of a crime thing. Awesome. Fantastic. I'm trying to find an agent for now. And that's a process. You have to send it out to people and wait for responses and all that. Sure. So I didn't write a lot of comics for a while cause I was so absorbed with that. Um, so since that ended, I wrote seduction and then I decided, because my brain was kind of fried after writing that novel, it's such a process, that I thought, maybe I'll ink again a little bit. And it just so happened that Jamie Rich got a job at Vertigo. And I said, Jamie, just so you know, I might ink a little more. Like, you know, I'd kind of given it up, but I think I might be interested. And they offered me a Vertigo series called Slash and Burn. So that's the other thing that is coming soon that I can promote. But it's not something who's I wrote. That? It's something I'm inking. Yeah. Who's the primary? Who's the penciler on that? That is a, a young kid named Max Dunbar. Okay. Um, he's done, I think he did like a, a Dungeons and Dragons comic for, was that IDW that had that license? Uh, Oof, I don't remember. And then he did something for Dynamite. Sounds... Yeah. Okay. And uh, he's phenomenal. A lot of, a lot of detail. Um, I don't know that he really reminds me of anybody, but really, again, it's grounded in realism, but there's a kind of an interesting cartooniness about it. I hate that word, but I don't know what else to say, but he, okay. he pushes this stuff, you know, and then it's written by a British writer named Cy Spencer. And it's a really smart book. Oh, I know Cy Spencer. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So that's coming out in November. And I think Excellent. I think seduction is December, right? I think that's what, yes. Yeah. Seduction definitely is December and stuff, and we'll make sure that this gets out. Yeah, so I got issue ones coming out back to back, but I inked one and I wrote one, so it's that's cool. Yeah. And you know, honestly, I mostly think of you as an anchor for you know Phil Hester, for Hester and right? because so, that so was his, like all I did for like fifteen years was ink Hester. Well, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. So how is it? You know, uh, how's it been? You know, ink, how many times have you inked for other people? Well, I did here and there, and at the end of inking Hester, but kind of before I retired, I inked Tony Moore for a while. And, oh, okay. And this guy reminds me of Tony a little bit in that um, it's a it's just a very different approach from Hester. Like, Hester and I both kind of have this bold graphic sensibility. Mm-hmm. Tony and Max Dunbar like to make lines, and they, they're really <laughs> good at it. <laughs> but I'm telling you, when you're sitting there as an inker and it's like, Midnight, and you're like, oh, my God, I haven't finished this one page yet today. There's too many lines. What are you doing? Uh, so it's a very different approach, but it really works in the end. It's just you've been, a different mindset. Okay. And I know you've been showing uh, your process on your Twitter feed and, and yeah, Facebook. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I shot a little video of like, I think people, they just are so, they don't understand what it's like to ink with a nib, you know? I mean, that even a lot of young artists who show me their stuff at shows these days, they either work with marker or kind of brush pens or something. What is a nib for the um, layman? A nib is like a dip pen, like a, a, okay. a croquil, you might say. Yes, yeah. yes. And that's okay. my main tool, especially on a guy like Max Dunbar. With Hester, I used, I was able to use more brush. But with Max, it's very a lot of little lines, and I need to use a pen. Right. And you, yeah, you dip it. And yeah. what I like about the pen, the brush is the greatest tool ever because you can get any line weight like with just barely moving your hand. I it see. takes a lot of practice, but with just a slight more pressure, you can go from razor thin to, you know, a super fat, chunky line. I'm up. The pen, you can do something similar. It's not as extreme as a brush, but I've used a pen so long that I can kind of drag the pen in the way it's supposed to be moved. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I can kind of turn it on its side and get a razor thin line and kind of <clears throat> manipulate it and get the lines that I want pretty easily. It just takes a lot of practice, you know. You know the old cliche that every painter has 500 bad paintings in them. Absolutely, you got you to get them out before you get to the good ones. It's a, you just got to have a lot of hours in that chair using these tools before they become second nature. But I, yeah, I think people are interested in seeing a video of me using a nib or using these tools that are kind of old school craftsman stuff. It seemed like for a while uh, there was a worry in the industry that inkers might be on the way out and yeah. that we might see more pure pencils just kind of – I don't even know the process of taking pencils and statting them in or whatever to make them right. you know, r- colorist ready and, and that the inkers' days might be numbered and stuff. It seems like that's not the case anymore. There are – I mean it happened a lot, especially depending on the economics. Like dynamite doesn't – have enough revenue to pay an inker probably. Okay. Okay. So at dynamite, um, I think Esteve inks his stuff, but a lot of their people just pencil tight and then they take it into Photoshop and they play the levels and make yes. the pencils darker and drop out some of the, you know, grays and so on. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's still a lot of artists like Max, I think could ink himself pretty well, but it's hard to pencil a book a month. It's hard to ink a book a month. It's really hard sure. to do both. It takes a rare guy like Chris Omni to do that every, you know, month in, month out. So there are some guys who cannot pencil tight enough to be shot from pencils or they don't want that. And they don't have time to ink themselves and they want a professional guy to do it. So there are still jobs out there, but it's, you know, it's not like when I broke in 20 whatever years ago when every book at Marvel and DC had an inker. Sure. No, it's, and again, I appreciate you putting it that way. It is the economics of comics and they are... They are rapidly changing, and we're kind of seeing that uh, in terms of some of the moves that the companies have made. Uh, it's a it's a changing market, and right. uh, I'm well. Like I said, I'm glad there's still room for you, both as an inker and a writer. I hope you find an agent for this uh, this book. Yeah, me too. I'd like to write another novel. It was really hard, but really rewarding too. Um, Excellent, man. No, dude. Uh, hey, like you know, from day one, I knew you from Union Station. Right. That's what got my Andy Park's attention. I kind of knew you and Phil. In a cursory way, sort of like when you were doing the Clerks comics, uh-huh. and certainly more so when uh, you guys were working with Brad on on uh, Green Arrow right, or right. you know the Nightwing stuff that you guys were doing with Devin Grayson, um, wasn't it Devin? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's okay. I wanted to make sure. Absolutely. So yeah, man. Uh, no, I, I'm glad, and, and yeah, I'm glad there's room for your for your art stuff too. Yeah. You know, I just had Brad on. Oh really? Any any? 
yeah, any any uh, any funny memories of uh, that era? You know, well, of course, you you started with Kevin for Christ's yeah, sake. Yeah, right. Arrow. Shame on me. It's funny. It was so, just, yeah, yeah, it was funny to, just to be around two guys who were so psyched to make comics and who totally didn't need to make a comic. You know, they had plenty going on. But talking to both Kevin and Brad, they were just like, "Holy shit, I'm going to get to play with, you know, the demon, or <laughs> I'm going to get to write, you know, Speedy going back and finding the old ring, and just all this." They just the thought it, they just thought it was the coolest thing ever, yeah. And the Arrow car, absolutely, right. man. No, I, no, both runs were just fantastic. And you know, how often, like, do you ever see those guys? And Brad doesn't do as many conventions as he used to. It's been a while for you both. Know? I exchange an email every now and then with Brad, or like, I'll say cool. some on Facebook, and he'll shoot me a little PM or something. I haven't talked to Kevin in quite a while, but I know if I saw him, we, you know, he's always been super nice. And he, you know, once you work with Kevin, he considers you family and that's part of the film thing you know you you work on these films and it's like assembling this big team which is like a family who you're so you with so intense for like you know six months whatever it may be absolutely he has that mentality and i still he still considers me part of the family because we worked on comics together yeah man for a really long time absolutely that's no that's fantastic that's cool to hear and I have to tell you that uh, from a film, uh, uh, you know, kind of history standpoint, I finally bought uh, the first volume of uh, Simon Cowell's Orson Welles uh, biography. Oh, nice. I read the first one and I have not kept up with him. The second one I bought for a friend and then our friendship ended. So I don't, oh, no. <laughs> I don't know. If, you can't, so I'm going to have to go out borrow. and find it right. again, man. Exactly. <laughs> I'll buy it on Amazon the hell with it. That's all right. Uh, but, uh, no, man, it was, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm psyched to read those. He also, and, uh, you know, he has a great, I don't remember if he wrote a whole lot in book, but I have a little thing that he wrote about just about the making of, uh, oh crap. Now I'm blanking on the lot in film, the one lot in film. Oh, night of the, yeah, Iguana. uh, N- night of the hunter or night of the hunter. That's right. right. He has a great, uh, short book about the making of that and about Lawton's process and all that. It's pretty, wow. That's cool. What is, there is a night of the iguana though as well. There is. There? I don't know what I want to say. That's like a Taylor and Burton thing, isn't it? Oh, you're right. Nice. That a boy. See, Edge, you you always say you're like, well, I'm not really. I don't move for any. And then you pull this shit out of your ass, and it's like, yes, you are. Shut up. Of yeah, course I'm you not are. As, I'm not as as well versed as you and uh, Hardman. You just corrected me, man. What are you talking about? You're doing good. <laughs> Absolutely. And and uh, did you watch last month um, on Turner? They uh, they had the author of that five came back. The uh, I haven't seen the, it. I've been, I've seen the promos, but I haven't seen it. Yeah. You know, the the book is excellent, and I'm assuming it's in softcover now, and that's probably one of the reasons why they had him on. Right. Uh, Mark, I want to say Mark Harris, and I could be wrong about that, right. but definitely the title for people listening. It's Five Came Back. I talked about it when it first came out a year ago, and it's about the five directors that mm-hmm. went to war, John Ford, John Houston, William Wyler. Uh, right. Um, and let's see. There's two more. Uh, oh, damn it. Uh, Fred Capra, of course. Yes. And Who was is it Wellman? Is it William Wellman? Might be, might be. I'm probably wrong, but I'll say William Wellman for yeah. the purposes of our discussion, and people can correct me or go re- actually read the book. But it's tremendous because it's everything they were doing in the 30s leading up to World War II. Right. Their actual work during World War II and how it affected how it their shaped. Post- yeah, right. Yeah, post war. And William Wyler is the most interesting. Well, actually, they're all really interesting, but uh, Wyler and. Um, 
Weiler made Best Years of Our Lives, right. which was kind of about the soldiers coming home and the difficult adjustment back to civilian life after the, right. the horrors of war. And it's kind of interesting that there's a subtext of Weiler's own uh, traumatic experiences and stuff. Right. Uh, really, and again, all of them were affected by by their war experiences. But yeah, it's an excellent read. I got really to seek that out. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes you appreciate in some cases uh, works, and then and I don't I won't tip which directors I'm talking about, but they're ones that I had in very high regard, and then I read this book, and then I rewatched the movies and can kind of see the flaws. Oh, really? In, in their work, okay. and I'll, I'll leave it at that, okay. and I'll let people read and discover for themselves. But yeah, it's an excellent book. Interesting. And uh, yeah, man, it was no, and uh, you know they showed the World War Two. Movies, propaganda films that they made both for the servicemen and for civilians, and a lot of those films are on YouTube as well. But yeah, it's an mm-hmm. excellent look at five really classic Hollywood filmmakers. Yeah, so I, I highly recommend Five Came Back to you and the audience. I was just, I was just uh, uh, I I had learned the other day about getting off of film for a while, but sure. that Yogi Berra was in the war, and I didn't know that what a hero he was. I didn't either. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know about it. He served really? and had quite an illustrious uh, record, I guess, before he came back and won all those rings and everything. You know, and uh, yeah, we, we lost him uh, just a couple of weeks ago as we're recording. Yeah. And, um, you know, I immediately, yeah, you, luckily being in sports radio as long as I was, I actually got to meet Yogi Berra. Nice. Uh, and, and also really had a Yogi Berra experience. We had Mickey Mantle in studio at our radio station. And uh, the producers thought it'd be a great idea to call Yogi at home in St. Louis and have the two of them talk on the phone, right. you know, and we thought it'd be great. And uh, so we call Yogi at, at his house and, hey, how you doing? We're like, yeah, listen, Mickey's in studio. You, you want to talk? No, no, let Mick do his. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I do want to talk to him. <laughs> and we're like, great. OK, fine. So we put on the screen and, you know, the host's like, hey, God, Mick, look who's on the phone with you. It's your old pal Yogi Berra. Hi, Yogi. How you doing? You know, that great, that great <laughs> Oklahoma draw. And he's like, hey, Mick, listen, I know you're coming to St. Louis next week. Uh, for the uh, Italian Sports Hall of Fame dinner. Listen, uh, Phil Spumoni is going to be picking you up, not uh, Vito <laughs> Villasante, okay? <laughs> Phil Spumoni, all right? Okay, Yoga, all right, take care, bye-bye. And he hung up. <laughs> and we're just like, awesome. That's we fantastic. Just yeah, classic Yogi Bear and stuff. So yeah, we're like, and it was great. And and uh, you know, and and, and Manuel's like, say, I told you, man, that's Yogi. He goes, there you go, classic, you know, classic Yogi. And we were dying. We were like, this is fantastic. So yeah. But again, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned his great record because, yeah, we all know the funny stories and stuff. Right. And, and yeah, man, when you look at his stats, he's one of those guys that, like, holy cow, what a career. What an oh, amazing, I know. amazing. As a, yeah, really. As a player and as a manager. Great manager, won, too. I think he won 13 rings as a player and a manager. It's, which it, was, it was crazy. Only the Yankees have a t- as a team have won more than that. Exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's the Yankees of 20-something. Then Yogi with 13, and then the Cardinals have 11, I think, is the ranking. And they in the Ken Burns baseball documentary, Robert Creamer, the excellent baseball mm-hmm. historian since past, said that he interviewed Stengel and said, who was really the one player you could never do without? And he's like, well, that's a fair question. He goes, I'll tell you. He goes, I, uh, I always had my man in the lineup no matter what, one guy. And he didn't name him. But then they went back and looked at like the lineups for the games and stuff, and it was Yogi Berra. Oh, nice! Because it's been even days that he wasn't catching. Right. 
put him in the outfield or he'd put him, you know, wherever he could, right field or whatever, to make sure that his bat was there because he he was a 280 career here. He didn't quite make it to 300 right. or 284 or something, but the guy would connect all the time. Yeah. And they and they weren't necessarily big hits, but he would get on base. Right. And just, you know, and then to call all those great pitchers and stuff and and handle all the different personalities and get such great performances out of that Yankee pitching staff yeah. and stuff. I mean, the guy was amazing. It's amazing. And when you when you watch a catcher just just watch a catcher for a full game. I don't know how many it is that for one season, let alone like 15. Yeah. It looks yeah. so hard on their bodies. It's incredible. Yeah, man. No, you know, Fisk, uh, you know, finished his career in Chicago and we got to kind of know him, uh, in Chicago and stuff. And, uh, we would talk to him about stuff like that and, um, never got to know bench. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of some of the lifers and stuff that right. were out there. Yeah. Fisk was the guy. And like I said, had the couple encounters with Yogi and, and that was a great thing too. Much like a Harry Carey that's known for his clownishness and stuff, when you got him in the right environment and really wanted to talk about like the science behind baseball, mm-hmm. it's great to see that like Yogi Berra and, and Carey and stuff, they would give as great an interview as, as any intellectual that you would think of right. in terms of the game and stuff. And yeah, these guys just really knew the game. They knew their business. And right. it's it was really, really fun. And that, that would get me excited from a, from a sports talk standpoint yeah. when we them on. Losing, so. losing Yogi it really got me thinking that we're not going to have any World War II guys you know, before too long. Yeah, no kidding. I don't even know who's it, left. It makes anymore. me think of those old, um, in the Civil War, Ken Burns Civil War documentary, he shows a like a, a World War II era parade or something, and there's like the last Civil War soldiers are there, you know. Wow. They're holding the cone up to their ear and all that. Sure. And it pretty soon will be like that for the World War II. They're all getting in their 90s. Oh, good Christ. We're already there, man. Yeah. There's that whole, there was that whole, uh, you know, flying them out to... Uh, the World War II memorial that they've you right, know right. erected and everything and and yeah just no you're right I mean God all my, all my uncles that served they're all gone yeah. you know my dad's gone and he was uh, he was in the occupation he started in '46 in the army right so yeah and no it's uh, just to bring him back so your audience isn't bored to death I mean the same as that <laughs> you can say the same in comic book the Golden Age guys I don't know who's left you know mark mark evan you makes that point all the time and frankly it's the silver age now that obviously are the endangered species yeah, i mean right. it's yeah man no it's yeah it's very depressing wow all right way to bum us out at the <laughs> end there, <H-R>. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. no no very cool stuff coming slash and burn in november with uh cy spurrier spurrier Spencer. and uh there's cy two Spencer, sides that, this is cy yes, Spencer, not, right. not the hair clip for men man right. uh, cy <laughs> <laughs> or, or, the, or the other Cy Spurrier. That's right, Cy Spencer. Right. And, uh, and yes, Max and, uh, and Max Dunbar and Seduction of the Innocent coming uh, with uh, the Lone Ranger team uh, fronted by Andy Parks and uh, Dynamite in December. Excellent. Thanks Excellent, so much, man. man. Hey, as always, no, pleasure. And uh, when uh, when that novel's ready, you know uh, I better get a, a preview copy and we'll talk Absolutely. about that. Well. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, wrapping up the conversation with uh, Brent Schoonover. Uh, very happy to have Brent back. It's been a while since we've done a long, in-depth conversation, a couple floor interviews over the years. But uh, Gr- Brent's uh, kicking ass. He's doing some really neat books right now. Uh, we're talking about uh, his uh, first issue for IDW's Back to the Future. That comes out on Wednesday. And then uh, also he's uh, with Frank Barberi on All New, All Different Marvel, whatever the hell it's called. Whatever the hell it is, Howling Commandos. Now, I know we've been down the Howling Commandos route before, but I have a feeling this time Frank Barberi and Brent Schoonover have 
have uh, clicked onto the uh, right combination of shield and monsters and a lot of fun. It's it's a great first issue. They gave me a chance to look at it, and I'm very excited for this series. And uh, happy to welcome uh, Brent back. We're going to have to get uh, Barbarian as well and talk about that and some of the other things that Frank's got going on. But for now, happy to uh, welcome Brent Schoonover back. Uh, we share a lot of interests, and actually, it became a very Halloween-themed uh, episode uh, because of what we talked about. So uh, enjoy it now. Me and Brent Schoonover talking on Word Balloon. It has been a long time since Brent Schoonover has been on Word Balloon, and shame on me that it's taken us this long. But uh, welcome back, man. Good to talk Good to you. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Hey, you got some cool uh, projects up and running right now. You're uh, you're part of this Back to the Future thing for IDW? I am, yeah. Um, God, it, it, it's funny how all the connections sort of like always like who you meet early on in your career kind of pay off. But um, David Hedgecock from Ape Entertainment – uh, back when I first started with Horrorwood and self-publishing through those guys. Horrorwood, it, holy shit, that's going way back. Yeah, yeah it's like 2007, 2008. And um, so he's he's an editor now at IDW, and we were always keeping in contact and stuff. And I think I had just been sending him some stuff just to, you know, here's some latest work of mine. And um, he was just like, dude, he's like, I just I want to work with you again on something. And I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. And so he... Um, he kind of filtered my work around and uh, I think he might've known I was always a big back to the future guy. Cause we just threw talks at the conventions and stuff. And uh, he had John Barber uh, reach out to me and uh, John, terrific. What's that? I know John. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, he's like, we've got this, uh, he's like, we got these back to the future license, you know, if you want to keep it on the download, but he's like, we'd love to have you. Uh, and I was like, God, it's to me, that's that trilogy is like my original, the, the star Wars trilogy for, for <laughs> uh, I know the third and second one don't quite hold up, but like the first one at least is probably maybe my all time favorite movie. You know? I still like all three. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I, I would say it goes one, three, two in terms of order of, of goodness or whatever. But I even t- though two is kind of that middle yeah. awkward movie. She's, as she's got that great seconds. sequence where it's just nuts where, it, he goes back to 1965, and there's already him back in 1965 that I think is like, man, it, uh, it's crazy how that worked. But like, he's he's at the dance where he's playing. I don't know. Like that scene alone is just like crazy to me. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. No, that's I mean, and I think that's the knock on it is that it is so meta and like you know hangs on knowing what happens in the first movie. But it's like, well. Yeah, that's okay. It's a sequel, right? You know, I mean, that's my response back. Oh. But and of course, as we're living this now, being baseball fans, <laughs> yeah, a good God, you yep. know, I mean, the future seems to be coming true. I mean, I don't want to jinx anything. Especially <laughs> no, no, I, I, I just love Cubs. how they keep mentioning it every time the Cubs win. Is so, so yeah, so so um, you did. Are you doing the backup story? I'm doing it. It's two stories. Um, it's a 14 page story and then a six page story. I'm doing the 14 page story. I'm drawing that. Um, John Barber's writing it, and then the stories are all by Bob Gale, the creator of Back to the Future, which was super cool to you know have him involved in in a creative capacity because you know you just see that name pop up when you're watching these movies as a kid, and so. Um, he was really cool. Um, I'm doing the story that is the first time Marty uh, met Doc Brown, which was really fun. And um, and John kind of wrote the scripts a little open, so like he was just like any little Easter eggs you can fit in these things would be great. 
And uh, I was a super fan. So like backgrounds, I, you know, tried to fit in something from the movies, uh, characters and stuff like that. Um, I don't know, just anything I could from the movies. And so it was kind of neat to get, you know, responses from Bob Gale, like freaking out about all the little nuances that I kind of added in the background, you know? So, so I felt like that was a, a success, but <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was a great project to work on and got to do a cover and Jordi Belair colored it. And that was cool. Excellent. And yeah, I mean, like you said, there are a lot of Easter eggs and people will recognize locations and moments that all make sense. Yeah. If you know, as, as a fan of the three movies, no man, it's a, it's a great franchise. And also Bob Gale, of course, longtime comic book fan. He did that excellent. Um, and I will call it excellent daredevil story. Um, that ran between it ran right before Bendis's yeah. um, run, his regular run. Like I think he had done the David Mack story. Then they went to like he and David did one story. Then uh, Bob came in and did like a four or six parts uh, story of Daredevil. I think it was only four parts. Yeah. And then and then Brian's regular run started on Daredevil with Malev. Yeah, and I kind of had forgotten about that until we got started, and I was like, because um, I was just like, oh, we're we gonna get a writer on this and. They, they weren't sure if Bob was going to write it yet. And I was just like, oh, I was like, does Bob, does Bob have a lot of comic experience? And they're like, well, yeah, actually, he did Daredevil. <clears throat> and I, I like, thought about it. I'm like, oh, my God, he did. And that was the first thing I thought of. was like, that was right, kind of like the coming right before Bendis had kicked yep. in. And I forgot that he had done that. And because I've been, a, I was collecting Daredevil time. And it, I, I remember enjoying it quite a bit. I just, it kind of. Had had kind of fallen off, fell off the radar for me, but yeah. sure, you know, and and kind of like the second Back to the Future movie, I think it has its critics, and I'm yeah. like, I and it, especially coming off of Wade and Somney's run, yeah, because it really was a very, I mean, there there were no frills to it beyond like it was an interesting court case story. It it required uh, uh, Daredevil to be on the stand and and cross examined by Matt at one point. So, you know, and if people haven't read it, they should find it because yeah. uh, there's a good solution to that. And, uh, yeah, it was just a good kind of straight up yeah. Daredevil, Matt Murdock, court case into crime story. Yeah. Nothing really terribly long. Just, yeah, just kind of a yeah. cool little story. So, yeah. <clears throat> so, so that's that's great. So how long are you on uh, Back to the Future? I'm only, it, it, that's a cool thing is that every issue is going to have a new creative team for – um, I think even the stories are going to change. I think there might be, you know, one issue's got a 10 page story and another 10 page story. Another one might be a full single issue. They're just, I think they're just for now. I think they're kind of, you know, whatever stories that Bob sort of got that wants to be told, they're kind of just taking them and kind of finding the right creative team for them. And so, uh, so yeah, I'm doing 14 pages and then Eric Burnham who does the Ghostbuster books, he's doing a little short six page story. Okay. So he did that backup story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's a that's kind of a young Doc Brown story. Yeah, yeah. And Eric's so good at all these, you know, he does so much of this Ghostbusters stuff and he's so good at taking these things and um I kinda call him like he's like a <clears throat> Bill Matlow kind of guy. Like he kinda sometimes I feel like he gets these gigs that maybe aren't like the most desirable. It's like here here's a six page Doc Brown story, you know? And, and he, he still manages to turn it into something that was probably better than what they could, you could have hoped for, you know, so but Excellent. he does a lot of that with the Ghostbusters stuff too. It's just, um, you know, I love the Ghostbusters books, but I, I or in the movies, but I never really like, oh, you know, how good is a Ghostbusters comic really going to be? And he's done some, 
he's done some really great stuff. He did a really cool, like two page, uh, two issue thing with, uh, Evan Shaner a couple of years back. Oh, I love yeah. doc. Absolutely. Another yeah. good doc. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Yeah. Now I wanted to ask you is, um, is there, are there any rules in terms of likenesses that you had to kind of avoid? Because they're, they're definitely appropriate for the character standpoint, but they also aren't like uh, J.K. Woodward doing, you know, <laughs> you know, Nemo and Shatner, uh, Star Trek. Yeah, I was told that we, we weren't able to do likenesses and stuff, okay. so I, which was fine with me. Um, you know, my our story takes place two years before the first Back to the Future. That's <clears throat> so, you know, to draw them younger. So I I was, you know, fine with it. But the the funny thing was, was all of a sudden I started seeing all this other artwork come and I'm like, man, there's a lot of artwork for like the 37 covers that they've got that like, man, they're just (laughs) absolutely spot on. So um, at at some respects, I kind of feel like maybe I should have, you know, went a little more likeness heavy than I did. But uh, the original art direction was to, to not do that so much so sure. you know i was honoring that and then found out everybody else was not so i'm gonna be the oddball out <laughs> no that's okay and honestly no it looks good i i just i wasn't sure and you know so, i know again there are those fans that immediately will be like oh yeah you know and like and it's like okay there might be a reason why god i i know other licensed things where you know the license holder is very you know stiff about that or you know, a lot of times those contracts were never signed, so it might be a hassle to go back to you know Chris Lloyd or Michael Michael J. Fox. They seem cool enough that I yeah. would think they would be okay, but you never know. And also, you know, it's it's their prerogative. God, I uh, I remember a film adaptation to comics that uh, was all done. Chuck Dixon wrote it, and I think it was Butch Geis for Wild Wild West. The oh god, the, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the Fresh Prince stuff, you know. Yeah, and and um, and he put a kai. Yeah, Will Smith put a kibosh on. He's like, nope, don't want it. And it's like, okay, <laughs> guess we're not doing this, and it's done. Yeah, but it was like, all right, I, I suppose that's not going to happen now. <laughs> yeah, I. Oh man, uh, oh. I I was fine with it because just you know Michael J. Fox, like I said, I think it was like kind of like a prequel. And I just think that, like, with, there's been enough time that's passed from the movie. It's not like we're doing something that, with a film that's coming out like this summer. That's like kind of make, kind of make Marty like the every kid, you know. And Doc Brown sure. has got this characteristics to him that, you know, you do that what that hair the right way, and you put him in a lab coat. Like, you don't you don't need to be doing. <laughs> I don't need to be spending time like dragging pictures of Christopher Lloyd off in, uh, into my computer so I can trace him. You know, it's like, ah, eh, I think we're good here. And so, um, I. You know, we kept it light and fun, and uh, I'm really happy with, you know, the kind of the lightness part of it and stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It was just a fun story to do, and and I hope people check it out. And um, I'm really excited to see, like, when I first got offered, I was kind of, like, hoping that there was, like, some sort of, like, uh, future evil Biff Tannen or, uh, (laughs) like, or even uh, a... Oh, what's the the mayor's name? Uh, oh, what was the name? Oh, Goldie, Goldie Wilson. Wilson. Like he was always Hell a yeah. cool character to me. Um, <laughs> like I kind of wanted to draw something like him, you know, like with him or something like that. So there's just a lot of characters in that film that really kind of resonated. Like just they were small bit parts, but like they just played them well and they're likable. Sure. And like even the band from the co- uh, from the dance, like getting out of the car. Like I was like, those guys were pretty cool, and they they didn't have any lines, you know. So like. Oh, his band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Marty's band. Yeah. 
Because I was thinking of uh, Marvis Berry, yeah. of course. That's awesome. Yeah. No, I um, well, and, and I was going to ask too. I never watched the cartoon. I've seen the guy that does uh, Marty yeah. uh, from the cartoon, and he's amazing. He looks like uh, David Spade, and looks like he could have played uh, Marty McFly when he was a teenager as well. And I can't remember the actor's name. But did you ever watch the cartoon? I was remember watching that like vaguely on like when I was a kid, and I remember it not being great and just kind of like disappointed. Wow. <laughs> like you know, it just didn't quite capture. I think because I think it was, uh, if I remember correctly, it was like two short stories, and then I think uh, I think Christopher Lloyd played Doc Brown in the in, like a buffer, and like he would just introduce him. Yes, I remember that. Yes, indeed. And, and, and I just remember as a kid too, like. Like when you knew the actor that uh, was in the movie wasn't that voice of the of himself, and you just kind of got disappointed. Like I can appreciate. I remember, <laughs> I remember Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling, you know, and I was like a huge Hulkamaniac when I was a little kid. And then all of a sudden, it was uh, oh, I don't even. Remember. I think it was um, Ray Romano, the guy who played Ray Romano's brother. Uh, oh, Brad Garrett. Yeah, that I makes sense. Garrett was the. I found out years later that he was the voice of Hulk Hogan in his own. That's fantastic. Hilarious. But I just remember being like all psyched about it. And I'm like, that's not Hulk Hogan's voice. And so just those little things just sort of bummed you out. You know, and you're just like. No, I know. I understand what you mean. Uh, You know, I can't remember in the 70s. And sadly, that's how old I am when they had the Muhammad Ali cartoon. Oh, wow. And um, I've I've only seen bits of it, but now I'm going to have to YouTube that later tonight. Yeah, really. And I mean, of course, I remember the, the horrible Mr. T cartoon, although Mr. T was actually in it. Yeah. And a buddy of mine um, played Jackie Chan oh, really? in the Jackie Chan cartoons. And in that case, Jackie was willing to voice it himself. But it literally, it, you know, without and I hope this doesn't sound offensive, but really like his accent was too thick. Yeah. And they really were like, I don't know if kids are going to understand it. Right. So, so they they got my buddy who was already there was like a magic dragon that would like, I think he was like would tell inspirational stories or or you know have something sage to say mm-hmm. to to the group. And they're like, can you do Jackie as well? And it's like, sure, <laughs> you know. And he's like, is Jackie okay with that? And they're like, no, actually, he is. And yeah, and I mean that was the great thing was like you know Jackie's like yeah okay no problem you know it's like okay whatever you're still getting paid (laughs) yeah exactly and that's fine he's like even better I don't have to work but no he was he he totally rolled with it and was like very sweet to my friend and everything so yeah it was like okay good (laughs) you know he was very relieved that's cool so very funny man well let's move on to Halloween Commandos because uh, first of all really happy I I didn't realize that it's uh, you and Frank Barbarian I'm a big Five Ghosts fan yeah. Uh, Frank is a great guy. I'm sorry I wasn't in New York, so I didn't have a chance to see him in his local haunts uh, this past weekend. But uh, every time I see him at cons, we shake hands, and I'm, I'm always glad to see him. And this seems like a lot of fun and a good adventure book. Yeah, um, I had met Frank uh, not about a year ago, basically, at New York Comic Con. And uh, it was, we kind of just bumped into each other, had a beer one night, kind of with Declan Shalvey and Michael Walsh, and uh, kind of chatted and got just, you know, good friends, not good friends, but, you know, just con, con friends that you always see. Yeah, good hangout. And uh, I, I was a huge fan of his uh, stuff, too, and I was just like, you know, kind of on the radar of what he was doing, and I knew he was kind of starting to get more Marvel work and stuff like that. Um, for me, I just, I, I kind of finally got in with Marvel earlier in the year. Uh, helping Mitch Garrett's out with uh, the Punisher, and um, I, I did about I did a couple issues of that with him. I kind of split in art duties, and then um, 
Ant-Man annual came up. And uh, so I ended up doing the Ant-Man annual, which came out like right as the movie came out, which was great. Yeah, I've got that. Absolutely. Yeah, super West. Nick Spencer wrote a really cool script. And uh, that surprised me. Another good team up. You and Nick. Yeah, very good. Yeah, super fun. And um, and then my, our assistant editor on that was John Moyson and Will Moss was the editor. And when that was wrapping up, I was just kind of checking to see if there was anything else that they might have for me. And uh, John was like, well, why don't you do this promo piece for this upcoming book we had called Holland Commandos? And he had sent me all the characters in it. And, like, it was when I got the list of characters, I was just I couldn't do anything but smile because it was just this awesome, you know, like, you know, 1950s Jack Kirby monster, you know, Orgo. I know. I love Orgo. 1970s Marvel, which was some of the earlier stuff that I ever got my hands on was, you know, like when I was a kid, there was like my brother had a friend who's like his older brother was going away to college and he wanted to get rid of some stuff. So he sold my brother like a box of comics and it had probably maybe like 80 or 100 comics in it. And it was all 70s stuff. And so it was like Nova um, and Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, Man Thing, like just all this great stuff. And so me and my brother just destroyed that stuff when we were younger. And I just really fell in love with, like, the 70s Marvel stuff when I was really young. And so Man-Thing has always sort of been, like, kind of, like, on that comic book bucket list to draw. And so when I saw him on the list, I was like, that's that's awesome. And I don't know. It's just it's really cool because, like, you got Dum Dum and Jasper Sitwell in there in some capacity. So, like, um, <laughs> I just think it does a really cool job of, like, plotting from different – ages of the Marvel universe. And we've got some really cool new characters like, uh, Teen Abomination, who's the son of happy Hogan. Uh, he played a small okay. role in, um, superior Iron Man recently. I had to kind of go back and check and Uh, yeah. So he had like a little, I think a couple issues he was in there and hit monkey, which has kind of come out in the last couple of years, which is really sure. fun. Yeah. Uh, that was, um, Oh God. Uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel Daniel Way, Way. I think, right. Yeah, Dan Wayne, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, Vampire by Night, she's a kind of like a really small character from like the later end of Werewolf by Night, I believe. And um, well, now that's interesting. I thought that Jeff Parker created that. You character. know what? You're right. There was a. I think her mom actually was the a character in that. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, I see. In the original yeah, Werewolf, I didn't know that because yeah. I loved. I was kind of hoping that Jack Russell might be part of this group. Well, but it's. It, I'm happy that uh, Parker's there. Oh, what do you? Oh. Are we going to possibly see a Jack Russell? Uh, I hope so. We, we've talked about it. We've, um, you know, me and Frank, we love the kind of old Legion of Monster stuff. And sure. we didn't want to make this. There's been a couple of incarnations of this yes. Monsters Howling Commandos thing. And we didn't want to make it too on the nose with like, it's the Legion of Monsters, but now they're just Howling Commandos. They kind of just did it with this really cool Deadpool miniseries that's kind of been tied into Secret Wars. And we thought, well, let's not give it – let's not do Frankenstein you know, and all the main ones. So well, we have Warwolf in here who's a new character, which I think is really cool. He's kind of got this unique thing going where he's got um, this uh, injection. He can inject himself with like a werewolf serum uh, to help him out when he's on a mission. So it's like he's not really – he's not an actual werewolf. He just – he can pump the serum into him. So I don't know. It's kind of a unique take on it and uh, – but um, we have talked about, like, if we do get a nice little run, like, we we definitely want to get, like, the classic Marvel monsters in on it. So I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they show up. It's just kind of we want to give a chance to give, you know, these characters a chance to have the spotlight for a little bit before we do it. 
That's cool. And I and as you say, there have been a couple of Legion of Monster things and also other Howling Commandos. Um, I had forgotten about uh, how, and I'm not even sure how much Dum Dum was in some of those Howling Commandos. I would imagine he would be. But what I was going to say when you had him with a bunch of monsters, it reminded me of the '70s when he was in the Godzilla book. Wasn't he in the Godzilla? Dum Dum, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was great. He, yeah, I'm sitting here looking at it right now, actually. So there you go, man. No, and that's that's why it's like no, this makes sense. And also, I love that they found a way to put Dum Dum in Agent Carter. Because yeah. I really loved him being in the first Captain America movie, and I'm like, oh, this is too good of a character to just have only in one movie. I mean, and I really miss in the cinematic universe that he and, and Nick can't be together. Right. Uh, John, uh, hey, John, can I pull sure. up my daughter saying goodnight to me? Just Oh, yeah, sure. Hey, Nicole. Jo- Josie, you want to say hi to John? Hi, John. <laughs> hi, Josie. I love your pictures. You're a very lovely little girl. <laughs> jo- Josie, you want to say goodnight? Just say hi to him. Yeah, <laughs> she's, she's off the bed. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, yeah. No, I thought they got a uh, – she just left, so I think – Okay, man. Yeah, no worries. We're back. I give her a good buffer, but um, – we, we can give her a little cameo on Word Balloon. That's all right. She's adorable. Um, I thought they got such a great actor too that it's like, man, you can't just kind of give that guy a, a one appearance in one movie kind of thing. And I, they've been really smart with Agent Carter and stuff and how they've kind of been able to bring that back and stuff. I hope that they get, you know, like something like I, – I think the LMD thing, like Life Model Decoy thing that they've kind of got going on with them is pretty clever. Um, that's one of the coolest things I think about the book that we have is that it's almost like our our leader is kind of like the most, uh, you, uh, you know, you can – <laughs> you can get he's rid of the bowler. He's, he's, he's Kenny from South Park, really. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, no, I I understand it. Yeah, I mean, now both books give us like the timeline for both books because I, you know. Oh well, uh, Back to the Future comes out on October twenty first, and so okay, so yeah, this coming Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, and then a week later, the Holland Commandos number one starts, and that's monthly. So okay, good. Yeah, I didn't want to. I I didn't know how much you wanted to spoil in terms of. You know, yeah. So I don't know if that's a surprise or not. The Dum Dum is. Uh, no, they've been know. they've been ta- It was announced. Or the the big reveal was um, in. Uh, I think the last big Marvel, uh, the event was that he he was an LMD, um, and now that's what we're playing off of. And there was actually a really great Al Ewing just did an issue of Shield. I think it was issue number nine, where it sort of like sets us up for Howling Commandos. It's um. It's basically how the the shield keeps bringing Dum Dum back, and so he he comes back a couple times as a LMD. He comes in this tube, he busts out, he's ready to kind of roll, and so and take on the next mission. And so it's really kind of a neat kind of thing, like you know this man machine kind of thing that he's conflicted with because you know he's still got Dum Dum's personality, which goes against doing this, but at the same time. Every time he's like wanting to be, he's almost like the wolf man. He wants to be, he doesn't want to exist, but like something comes up where he feels like he's the only right person for the job. And so, you know, it's like, okay, you know, give me a gun, give me my bowler hat. Let's get to work kind of thing. So, uh, <laughs> so is it, 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 is it an artificial intelligence that thinks it's dumb, dumb, or it has its brain, you know, engrams on there, or is it, they, <laughs> they save dumb, dumb's brain. <laughs> it's not dumb, dumb's brain, but they've, uh, they've gotten those personality traits down so much that, um, you know, he, he really does truly believe he's dumb, dumb, you know, okay. and, uh, 
So he sent. So it is an artificial intelligence yeah. that is so ingrained with his personality, it, it considers itself right to be. Um, so that's so that's So yeah, what kind of interactions does he have with old Nick? Um, well, Nick's not too much in the the book. Um, he's got Maria, right. we've got Marina Hill that he's mostly uh, responding to at this point, and um, the, they they clash quite a bit. It's pretty fun. Um, we've got a couple of characters that are sort of like even higher in command of the team than than Dum Dum is, and so um, that sort of comes in the first arc. That's sort of like where our our big you know. Uh, you know, are, are these monsters going to sort of follow in line or are they going to try to kind of be their own their own team a little bit? And so it's a good kind of like, you know, these loners that are kind of going against the, the authority that they're, they've got and stuff. So I don't know. It's it's a cool dynamic. And and I think Dum Dum, he just sees all like some of these younger guys and stuff like that and misfits. And he just he, he just knows if if he wasn't around, no one else would be looking out for him. You know, so he sort of comes to a conclusion pretty early that even though every time he perishes it as an LMD, he really hopes he doesn't wake up. He's now sort of got this thing where he's almost like a father figure where he's like, he's got to look after these kind of misfits, you know, sure. and help guide them. So it's very Lee Marvin, Dirty Dozen. Yeah, that's exactly what uh, me and Frank were talking about early on in the emails is that. You know, that's kind of got the vibe that we were looking for and stuff. And so, you know, the Dirty Dozen sort of set in the Marvel Universe. So with monsters, that's great. With, with giant 50 foot you know, monsters. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. And yeah, I mean, like you said, Jasper's in the book as well. Now, is his current condition already known? Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, OK. So we could totally say that it's zombie. It's zombie Jasper Sitwell yeah. that's yeah. in the group as well. <laughs> and, and that one's a great one to uh to play off with, with Nick because that's the one that hits Nick the hardest is it's the one he knows and he doesn't realize, you know, right away that he's a zombie. Oh, you mean Dum Dum doesn't realize. Well, he's when he first gets introduced to him, he's just, he can't believe that this is his friend that, you know, he used to go to battle with. And he's, sure. He's confident. He, he's the one he kind of really wants to try to fix the most. He think, you know, he thinks maybe there's a cure or something like that. And, um, it's just, you know, every time he tries to have a conversation to see if there's anything in there, you know, the only thing that Sitwell really kind of looks at him and he's like, dumb, dumb, you know, it's the only thing. <laughs> yeah, very so, basic. So it's, it, there's a little bit of comedy in there, but, um, and that's one thing I think Frank is really good at is, uh, is he really balances a lot of the action sequences. Um, it's a, it's a unique book. I mean, just it's, it's a, these horror characters in a shield team book, you know, so you've kind of got, you know, and you've got kind of traditional Marvel universe. And then, you know, you, you kind of want to throw a little humor in there, too. And so I don't know. You, you, I feel like a lot of writers would kind of rely on one of those pretty heavily and maybe the, the rest would sort of get sprinkled in. But but uh, Frank does a great job of balancing all of it. I, I don't know. And all those characters, too. I, I don't know how you you write them all and get them in there as well as he does. But he does a great job of fitting them all in really nice. Jeff Parker was using Man Thing in a great way. He was, yeah, yeah, and and now I'm blanking. It's uh, the Thunderbolts, yeah. of course, yeah, and, and they were using Man Thing to kind of transport. Is he is he going to be kind of the howl- the Howler's transport as well? Uh, not not to start out. We're kind of keeping him. Uh, he's kind of like this awesome, like they call it the secret weapon. Like they just they drop him from out of the sky when they really need him, and uh, <laughs> he just creates chaos. Like that's really what they do. Like. They don't know how to control them yet, and so they kind of just know that they have them, and and 
they drop him and they just kind of let him do his own thing. And so it's kind of fun that way. Um, I was a huge fan of Jeff's Thunderbolts run with Kev Walker and Declan. Yes. I thought that was one of the coolest team books over the last couple of years. Um, and I thought he kind of progressed man thing in a really neat, neat way. Um, but for now we're kind of leaving that mystery of what he can be and what we can do just kind of in the, you know, and just letting him almost be like he was in the original series. You know, you just, you didn't know what this thing was capable of. Um, hopefully if we get a nice long run, we can kind of explore it, you know, but, um, with nine characters in the book, it's, it's, there's only, you know, so much we're going to do at a time. So, Understood. Yeah. Well, you're right. And this is your first arc and everything. So how's it feel, man? I, I remember years ago when you were doing sketch cards for Marvel, and now you're now you're, now you're uh, doing a regular Marvel book. Yeah, it, it, it's awesome. I mean, um, you know, it's one of those things that finally happens, and you really want it. And it's like you're not really spiking the football at this point. You're just kind of like excited to get the work. And um, sure, uh, you know, I've I've had a lot of great friends who deservedly kind of this kind of came their way and. Uh, was really happy for him, and you just kind of were like, "Well, it'll it'll happen when it happens." And so, um, I, I was really happy with kind of like slowly creeping in. You know, like I did like six pages in this issue of the Punisher, and then you know half a page, the half an issue half here, and then getting to do the Ant Man. It was a really cool like gradual process, you know. And so, you know, um, I don't know. And the, and the projects have been really really cool. I mean, uh, I think everybody dreams of like. X-Men or Spider-Man or something like that. But, you know, with this, we're, we're creating some characters. So, like, to turn in, you know, character sheets of characters that didn't even really exist before, like, that's a thrill that I never really even thought of, I think, as a kid. It was like you just always wanted to draw the, the big guns. But to, like, turn in these sheets and be like, you've, you're creating a new Marvel character, hero, like, that was that was pretty cool. Like, you know, send that in. But I got to say, man, I've always appreciated some of the weird projects that have come your way from, you know, uh, I don't even know if you're considered or were you a co-creator of Mr. Murder? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, there you go. I mean, that that was, I mean, really, really beautiful and a, and a great book. And I hope a character or at least that you do get to go back to that kind of work at some point. Yeah. Because, I, I've, you know, um... I've got a lot of creator-owned ideas. I know me and Scotty Young have talked about doing one. We were actually probably, if you know, this Marvel stuff didn't happen, that was sort of like the next route was was going to do something with him. And uh, terrific. And we still have it on the back burner and stuff. And I know he's that man's keeping a little busy. <laughs> so, oh yeah, we just had him on Word Balloon actually. Yeah, the episode for yours. And, uh, so, yeah, man. Now he's. Uh, no, and I know he's brimming with ideas. Hell, man, even just uh, idle conversation on Twitter, you know, different things like, and I know we've talked about it before, wouldn't it be great to bring back some of the old radio oh, yeah. characters and stuff? Yeah, I, I think about that stuff all the time, and it's like, you know, to try to get the rights to it or, you know, all that stuff. Like, it's still one of those things that, like, I, I would love to do it. And um, I kind of think some of these characters, and I don't, you know, we got to talk to, like, a guy like uh, David uh, David Gallagher or something, like what he did with Johnny Dollar. I kind of wonder if a lot some of these characters might have just slipped through. It certainly, like, you know, I mean, some of the obvious ones, like The Saint, well, that was based on, you know, novels and things, right. and we know that's already copywritten and stuff. But there are tons of those, like, detective characters that are knockoffs of The Shadow or The Saint or whatever yeah, yeah. that are just really, you know, uh, a high society guy that, that you know, <laughs> – 
solving crimes and stuff on, on his spare time or whatever. Rich enough to, to fight crime. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. You know, so there's those guys and uh, so many other characters like that that, yeah, I, I kind of wonder. I mean, you know, like, and even like, you know, he did it with Johnny Dollar, but then he also did it with Box 13. Yep, yeah. And it's like I kind of think that, that whatever rights that Alan Ladd had to Box 13 might have died with him. I don't know if Junior... You know, it was a fun little he, like digital comic that box thirteen thing that he did too. Yeah, and I mean that's the thing. There's like there was let George do it. Yeah, which pretty much was do- box thirteen. Yeah, and it was a CBS show. I don't. I, I bet you could do a let George do it, and I don't think anyone would blame. <laughs> or you know, Nightbeat. I mean, when we Nightbeat. were all talking I was about a communist it. For the FBI. Yeah, I was one of my favorites. Um, uh, which one? Uh, I was a communist for the FBI. Yes, St. Andrews, Andrews, absolutely. Yep. Uh, yeah, the Space Patrol was always good. Man, I I, I kind of had gotten out of listening to uh, my like my, my daily like old time radio for like about a year or so. But with this <laughs> uh, Halloween, I decided I was I was gonna for Halloween this year. I wanted to go back and watch all the old Universal monster movies, and then I wanted to listen to some of the old uh, horror pod uh, or radio shows and. Sure. Uh, someone sent posted a link of like the 31 best horror radio Yes, show I saw that list. Yes, indeed. It was fantastic. And, oh, my God. I forgot about the three gold key episode with Vincent Price where he's stuck uh, <clears throat> in the lighthouse because all the, the rats from a ship. Yes, oh. three, three skeletons. Three, skeleton, three, skeleton. yeah, three skeletons. And the only reason why I'm correcting you is if people want to hear it, no. and especially as we inch closer to Halloween. And look for that list. Um, I, I think it was a <clears throat> nitrate lady. That might have. I mean, she's one of the yeah. classic Hollywood people that I follow on Twitter, yep. and I think if she didn't put it on her blog, then she retweeted it. But yeah, if you look up the 31 greatest old-time radio uh, horror shows, it's a great list, and there are tons of really, really good uh, old-time radio shows that they hold up. Yeah. They're really, yeah. really I mean, well. These done. are like the best of the best. They're like, uh, there's a one of the, I just last night like was listening at suspense. But it's the three girls who go out to a movie, and there's like a killer, and uh, it's a very simple premise. But just the way the production was, and um, God, I, I can't even remember who was the actress was, but uh, um, it, it was just so good, just so good the way it was done. It's like it just still holds up. It's incredible the sure. production value of it. Uh, it, was, it just man, I can't recommend it enough. It's a good way to spend a night if you're into like, especially like this time of year, if you're into kind of trying to do something fun for Halloween. Right. Yeah. Getting the spirit and everything. No, this is good stuff. I, I got a good two part suspense one that I love with Orson Welles, Donovan's brain. Yeah. that That's on there. I think too. Oh, what surprised me. And yeah, it was so good. It's a, it normally at the times cause suspense was also an hour long show, yep. but when they first did it, it was still half hours and they did it for two weeks and it's, it was excellent. Of course, sorry, wrong number is a great suspense yep. or a, a, literally a great suspense story. Uh, and then the, the werewolf one, was it the house on haunted Hill or whatever? Um, yeah. Is that the, one for the like cabin that. where they, they're reading the, no, it was a, or it, I didn't, <laughs> maybe it was a cabin. I always thought it was. Really it always like took people. place in an old manor or a cabin. It was the only, was, well, you see, and I thought it was more that they just bought a house that was kind of near the woods. I think that's right. And yeah, they just kind of discover that you know the, the former owner was a werewolf or whatever. <laughs> but Arch Obler, Catwife, and yeah, uh, some of the great lights out stories. There's a great Chicken one Arch Obler he stars in where he's up late trying to come up with uh, an actual idea for the show, and he's there late, and he starts hearing noises, and in yes. the 
actual like uh, office, and he just that because the whole show is him getting creeped out, and he can't write this scary <laughs> script. Yep. Uh, and for people who don't know, Arch Obler was basically the Rod Serling of like the the 30s, 40s, and 50s, yeah. pre pre Twilight Zone, and a very cool uh, writer and also great host, and much in the in the Rod Serling vein. Yeah, I, for every issue of Howling Commandos, I try to like somewhere sneak in a little nod to uh, someone in the like. Uh, I think the pre I think the preview page has already been out, but um, there's an oil rig in the first issue of Howling Commandos. And it just needed the name was always written on these oil rigs when I was referencing, so it's the, it's just got, got Cheney written on it, you know. It's just <laughs> something simple like that to just sure, man. And uh, Obler is definitely a name on there. That I want to I want to sneak in. Somewhere. Well, that's a good idea. Absolutely, yeah. Obler's a good kind of like nondescript name right. that there, and well, people who know will get it. Hey, how about your uh, your Vincent Price work for Blue Water? <laughs> oh man, yeah. I, <laughs> um, I it's funny because like I. I still have some copies of that and I go to conventions and you can just kind of get the vibe of like, you know, Mr. Murder and, and it, the old, that kind of retro stuff sells well. It's like, I'm going to put some of these out and just see if anybody likes it. And it's so funny because I put it out and someone walks by like, Oh my God, I love Vincent Price. And so it's, it's it, maybe it's, it's a little older work than I like to go back and look at, but it's uh it was fun, man. It was my first time getting to write anything too. And, sure. uh, it's one of those things of you know, Blue Water gets uh, maybe deservedly a reputation than what it does. But um, at the time, I just you know, I was probably my second or third project ever, you know, and I just told them, wow, just emailed them and was like, hey, I got this idea, and they're like, oh, go ahead and write it and draw it, and I was like, really? And so, and and what movie and character were you riffing off of for your idea again? Well, it was actually just a love letter to old time radio. It was Vincent, uh, the, the the character was Vincent Price. Uh, or not Vincent Price, but it was his his likeness, and it, he was like an old radio star with his w- wife, and they had like a Benny and Betty kind of radio show family, and uh, the ratings were sagging, so they were bringing in another character, and his wife was getting attracted to that guy, and it slow, slowly started to drive uh, Vincent Price mad, and so he he kills him one night, and he like shoves him in a broom closet in the radio. <laughs> in the radio, uh, and so he needs to get rid of the body, but like um, the body's talking to him, you know, and like while he's trying to do the radio show, he's screwing up, and it just, yeah, it's it definitely it was just a love letter to like a, what would be a classic radio story, almost. I hear you, man. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's very so, funny. Uh, that's really all I really ever wanted to do with it, and they let me tell that story, and it was really fun. And um, uh, I know uh, Vince's daughter was really like kind of she loved getting the copies of the book you know what people were doing with them and uh they they got back to me like about it and she said that this was probably her favorite app oh that's terrific i never you know i never got the email or anything like that but like i just got that note and that was that was cool well, you're reading my mind because literally last Halloween, um, she came to Chicago with uh, House on Haunted Hill. And and me and a friend went and um, my friend also is a massive foodie and she had uh, the Vincent Price cookbook that he and um, his wife made in the 60s. And this is just, I mean, this giant dictionary size, beautiful book. And in fact, Victoria, Vincent's uh, daughter, has been running a blog and I know too – 
they did a 50th anniversary edition of the cookbook either this year or last year. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you can look that up for people that are interested. The The recipes are terrific and they really are like, ah, you need uh, four sticks of butter for this. You know, so yeah, forget about cholesterol or anything. I mean, you're, you're hardcore cooking. But um, no, it was great. And yes, yeah, she could not have been nicer. And she did a really interesting live presentation kind of one woman show with film clips and, and interview clips of her father and uh she really has it down to a, a really entertaining presentation That's great. and then you see the movie and yes yeah, she could not have been cooler and was really really interesting and yeah i, I was really blown away because i'm like oh yeah maybe that'll be okay and then just she's great i mean because you know you, you never know when it's hey it's the daughter of so and so yeah, it's the son of so and so right um i had to listen to a couple interviews that she had done and she seemed really kind of articulate and, and knew you know <clears throat> kind of was with the you know the film industry and you know yeah well, she grew, you know, literally grew up in that was and legacy and yeah she seems like she could do a good job like holding an audience attention and stuff like that so yeah um, very funny really good stories and dispelled a lot of myths and also just the history of of price before he became a Hollywood, you know, great and everything, and just his like his whole family story and stuff, yeah. very interesting. He, he came out with a book on art too, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah, well, that well, yeah, that part of the career because and it's funny when I was a little kid, um, I was aware of this. Uh, the the department store Sears, mm-hmm. um, he, oh, yeah. he he made a deal with them to literally curate and get art, fine art that was affordable for homes. So, you know, there were things like limited prints that really established art, much like comics, but literally fine art artists would make or actual paintings as well. And you could buy a Picasso print from Sears, put it on your charge card, and, you know, if it took you two years to pay for it, fine. And you would have a Picasso in your living room thanks to Vincent Price. That's pretty amazing. And and Yeah, because he was just such an art expert. And – God, he started uh, like beautiful museums in like in the Southwest. I want to say in New Mexico or, or Arizona. One of the one of the major like either either in Phoenix or, or one of the cities in New Mexico. But just really interesting in how it's like no art really is cool right. and everyone should appreciate it, not just rich people. Let's get it to the people. Right. So yeah, he's a good guy, man. It's like oh man, it's like beyond being funny and being cool and egghead and yeah. all the great. Uh, you know, uh, Roger Corman, uh, Poe movies and things like that. It's like, no, he was great. I, are you listening to uh, Gilbert Gottfried's podcast? At I've all? heard it's really good, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. But um, is he keeps bringing up? Uh, he keeps bringing up the Tingler, and he loves imitating him, going scream, scream for the Tingler. It's <laughs> <laughs> just in that voice. Dana He's Gould does a great uh, does a great Vincent Price on his podcast too. Uh, does Dana great? Gould. Oh yes, he, yes he does. He does great. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he's so good. And his podcast is really fun too. Um, yeah, you know, this is good actually, man. We're kind of we're, we're we're staying in the Halloween uh, well, <laughs> because you're right. He's, Dana, he's uh, Dana his Dana Halloween Dana. episodes because he's such a huge Halloween fan. Uh, he usually goes all out for his October episodes, and uh, yeah, I think he just released his his uh, well, he calls it the son of Halloweenery, and then next year yes. will be the ghost of Halloweenery. <laughs> Halloweenery. I would imagine exactly. No, I you know. Uh, you're right, and not only at Halloween time, but even at pretty much year-round, he does a lot of great uh, behind-the-scenes stories of great horror films. Oh, God, he did a tremendous one about Beneath the Planet of the Apes, the second ape movie. Yeah. 
and just if you really step back and think about the movie, how bizarre it is, <laughs> and that it even got made, but or or uh, Nightmare Alley where uh, Tyrone Power plays the circus geek, yeah, that's on the uh, you know in the freak show and everything, yeah. and you know just Lon Chaney Jr. goes into his whole career and fascinating stuff. No, again because we're of the time of year, and if you're looking for interesting Halloween entertainment, Dana Gould's podcast is absolutely a must listen for sure. Very cool. This is good, Brent. We uh, we went to a bunch of different places here, right. as we should. Yeah. So, man. Well, hey, seriously, nice going, and uh, let's hope that uh, Holland Commandos is a nice, healthy run. Me too. And <laughs> and uh, yeah, oh, absolutely, man. And if not, uh, God forbid. Uh, I know you got other tricks up your sleeve, <laughs> but this is a good opportunity for people to really appreciate your art. I'm I'm really happy for you and Frank on this, and also coming this Wednesday. Uh, the first issue of Back to the Future. There we got uh, Brent Schoonover Art right there for you. Well, thanks so much, John. There you go. That's another word balloon in the books. I hope you enjoyed today's conversations, and I hope you look forward to more because October is far from over, and I still got lots of people that are uh, waiting to talk to you about uh, the books they're making right now, the television and uh, novels that they're doing, some first-timers, some long-timers, and uh, it's going to be very good conversation to wrap up uh, October into November and beyond. Uh, coming up in the weeks ahead on Word Balloon. Stick around. I think you'll enjoy it. Today's show was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Great deals are happening right now at InStock Trades. Uh, select Dynamite titles are up to 70% off. All DC and Image titles are a huge 45% off. Uh, there are also select Marvel Soleil and Famous Author titles up to 70% off. Select Boom Studio titles are up to 70% off. Great deals happening at InStockTrades.com. Things like from Paul Pope, Batman Year 100, and other stories, the Deluxe Edition hardcover is 50% off, $14.98. You can also get uh, another DC book that looks kind of interesting called Graphic Inc., the DC Comics art of Darwin Cook. Holy cow. Man, think of all the wonderful illustrations that uh, Darwin has done over the years. This is a great collection. 50% off, $19.99. You can get Marvel Masterworks uh, Defenders Hardcover Volume 5 is 50% off, $37.50. You can also get the Werewolf by Night Omnibus. I loved this. Uh, this is a great 70s Marvel horror title. 42% off, just $72.50. You can get Dwayne McDuffie's excellent series Damage Control, the complete collection is 42% off, $20.29. From Archie Comics, 75 years, 75 stories, 50% off, $7.49. From my buddies Matt Fraction and Howard Chaikin, Satellite Sam, the Omnibus Deluxe Edition, is 45% off, $24.74. Another buddy, Jim Zub, get uh, the Wayward Hardcover, Book One, 45% off, $21.89. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Lots of great books are waiting for you at prices you won't believe at InStockTrades.com. Don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself, InStockTrades.com. John Sutra saying thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. As always, thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners. You want to help the cause and you can't afford to subscribe to Word Balloon? Here's what you can do for me. Head to iTunes. Uh, rate the show. Write a review. Let them know how much you enjoy Word Balloon. Tell a friend that you like Word Balloon and that they should be listening to this show as well. Questions or comments, you can reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. You can follow me at Twitter under at John Word Balloon, at Facebook under my name, John Suntress, or like the page, the Word Balloon Network. 
all different ways that you can help support the show and uh, let them know, let other friends know that they should be listening to Word Balloon too. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you in a few days with another brand new episode of Word Balloon. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015.